everybody, this week, three sides of the coin, you get my Bruce Fairburn interview from 24 years ago. We chat about it up front, and then you get 53 minutes, the full unedited interview I did with Bruce Fairburn a few months after Psycho Circus was released and just a few months before Bruce passed. This is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things KISS. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Hey, Three Sides of the Coin. You got Mike. You got Mark. That's what we're starting with. That's what we're ending with. And it's going to be a much more intelligent show because of that. Among other things. <laughs> Mark's been fed. Tommy's not here. Ooh. This should this this should be just a very professional episode. Sure. <laughs> yeah, Mark's like sure. Have we had one yet? Come on. Um, I don't know. There's there, there's probably one within 500 episodes that could be considered professional. Well, the John. Locke I couldn't tell you which up. one. On. The, the pyro one was because that the author guy was really good oh so john like, watkins yeah yeah but who who was this remember that we had the author on from that book oh yes from the um what was it the station nightclub fire yes yes i mean that was all kidding that was that was a very intense episode yes that was yep there was no room to joke i mean it was no that's still just God, fucking the saddest thing ever, man. Yep. So, um, so no guests this week. Uh, we actually we we have Martin Popoff scheduled to come on and talk about his Kiss at Fifty book, but we're still waiting for the books to show up from the publisher so we can even look at the book before we talk to him. So well, it's hard to I, talk about a book. Yeah, I emailed Martin and, and the publisher last week. I'm like, you know, I think we might want to push this back. And they're like, yeah, that would be a good idea. You see, kids, you guys there. In the, um, we have to okay the book or like look, because if we don't like it, we will tell you we don't like it. Well, and that gets us in trouble. I know, I know, I know. But we are this, honest. Yeah, this, yeah. For for those who've been with us for a long time, you know exactly what we're talking about. But you know, I, I do know this. Um, I own and own because I bought tons of Martin's books, and I yes, his reputation is very good. Yes, I know it's going to be great. Just like I know when I read a Julian Gill book, it's going to be great because you know the kind of authors they are, you know, how detail oriented and the conversational uh, tone of their books and how much fun they are to read. So uh, we know it's going to be great ahead of time, but, but we still, we, we still want to be able to see it so we can at least know what we're talking about. Exactly. Um, and, and, and listen, this don't take this as a dig at Martin or his book publisher at all. I mean, they've been, they've been very upfront communicating that they've had shipping issues, getting the books out to, um, promo books out to media. Everybody who's purchased a book, I think, has gotten them. I mean, I've yeah, seen I know plenty of fans posting they got it. So they're I'm completely thinking, understanding. Uh, they they I'm know like another book. <laughs> yeah, another book that <laughs> 10 years later. Um, so anyway, Martin will be on. We're just waiting for the books to show up. They could show up at any point in time. We'll look at the book and then we'll get Martin scheduled to come back in. So no guests this week, but guess what that means? We can actually do our Bruce Fairburn episode this week. So you are going to be able 
later on in this episode, listen to uh, the full, I think it's about 53 minute interview that I did with Bruce Fairburn back in uh, 1999 when I was still working for Kiss and Kiss Online. Um, but before we get to that, and obviously we don't have that other guy here, not that he was ever going to read comments anyway, um, Kiss is deep in the heart of their last 25 shows. I think as we are recording this on Wednesday, November 1st, are they down in Southern California today? Uh, yeah. Is it, is it Irvine? Is that where they're at? I don't know. I thought it was Palm, I thought it was, I thought it was Palm, Palm Springs. Palm Springs. Palm Springs. Because tomorrow at this time, I will, my, my uh, chubby little bottom will be in, uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, Tommy's picking me up from the airport right about now, <laughs> 24 hours from now. Because so. you guys are going to the Hollywood Bowl show. We are. And then we're both coming right back. I've never done a, a, a junket like this one. I'm flying out on Thursday seeing kiss on friday and flying back home on saturday well it'll be interesting to see uh what you guys say because you know i think gene has hinted now granted you gotta take everything gene says online with a grain of salt but he's hinted that he's there's gonna be there might be a couple surprises for the hollywood bowl show now what does that mean who knows it could be anything from uh a different video screen behind them it could be a different set list it could be somebody a guest musician coming up keep in mind it is la it's hollywood um i don't know but it'll be interesting to see what surprises are in gene's mind that's one of the reasons i i kind of pulled the trigger on this i um I, you know, kind of the best of the both world, best of both worlds. But uh, honestly, I wanted to go to, you know, see, I wanted to make more of this trip, but work is just so damn busy that I'm like, okay, I can miss a day. You know what I mean? I, uh, I'm going to fly. I'm in fact, I'm going to work in the morning and then I'm going to go straight to the airport. So I'm actually missing a day and a half. Uh, and it's funny because people, oh, you're the boy. I'm like, that's more the reason why you can't. <laughs> you got to make sure everything is, you know, all in order. And, you know, customers don't care. They want everything done right. And, uh, you know, uh, don't remember my, 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 my crews are awesome. My guys are great, but still you want to, you know, as my father yeah, used to tell me, don't expect inspect. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's your name that's on the line and Correct. you can count on everybody you want to, but, you know, you're the one that has to answer for whatever might happen. Yes. And, and the only time, you know, it's funny, Michael's uh, really quick. Did you make your uh, for the Eddie trunk thing? Uh, not yet. I'm probably not going to make it because yeah, I mean, you're talking work. I've just got so much stuff going on with work and clients that to take, to basically take a day off is just like, oh, it's, it's, it's tough. And, you know, as we were talking here, I'm like, boy, to be the days where we were young, single, maybe didn't own businesses, that you just had vacation days at a company and you could go in and say, yeah, I just want to take three days off. And that was it. Nothing, there was no worries. I mean, I, I used to go all over the place. And this was before even working for KISS. You know, I'd, I'd 
living in Chicago, I'd go to Michigan to see shows. I flew out to LA to see shows. I'd go to New York for kiss conventions. And it's just like, yeah, you know, you can do those things when your life gives you the freedom to just up and take off. And it gets harder as you get older. I mean, you know, it's just, it takes a lot more planning when you get older, when you own businesses, when you've got employees, when you got family, when you got kids, when tough. Yeah. I, again, though, too, I mean, also there's the, the good part is, as you know, Michael, when you own your own business, you never have to ask anybody if you need the time or if you really right. want to do something. Um, because, you know, we are. Um, I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, the the last two KISS shows are on a Friday and Saturday, um, you know, in New York. So Liz and I are actually going to leave <clears throat> Uh, on the 29th and I, I think I, should, I don't know if I share this we found a pure dumb luck the Detroit Red Wings because you know what a big hockey fan I am everybody, everybody watches the show knows. but the Red Wings are playing the Rangers that Wednesday in New York so Liz and I are going to the the, the Red Wings team and that's the last thing at Madison Square Garden before kids so we're gonna go see the the hockey game on that Wednesday and then you guys Thursday. are going to go hide in a, a locker somewhere until the KISS show? <laughs> no, Thursday, I, a matter of fact, uh, our host last week is going to have an event. I guess, yep. The 30th, go do that. And then Friday and Saturday, KISS. And, uh, you know, um, we're, we're going to stay till Monday in New York. So, you know, that's the, the last big shebang. And then, or so we thought, <laughs> what did my wife just say? Mike, you got to take this. Well, actually, that's my brother. I'm going to text him, but I know it's work related because he's subbing for me tomorrow. Oh, you know, when I leave, he's going to help me out. So I'm going to just text him really quick. I will be. Jeez. Text him. Figure it out yourself, (laughs) asshole. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Oh, my God. Just give me a second. We'll get back to the podcast. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Um, one one of the other things, and you can relate to this. When I lived in Chicago and even in Minneapolis, it was so much easier to travel, to go to places because it would, like, for me to go from, you know. California to the East Coast, I might as well just take a whole day off just for travel, just to travel. And when, you know, when I was in Chicago, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's if you fly, it could be a a 45 minute hour flight somewhere. It could, you know, you can do like what you do, go in and work half a day and then head to the airport um, or drive. I mean, I can't tell you. I mean, I drove from Chicago to Detroit. I drove from Chicago to Muskegon, uh, you know, to Indianapolis. It's much easier. And I, I, I miss that part of being in the Midwest because we know the Midwest is a hotbed for kiss and kiss activities. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to sit here and go, all right, well, you know, they've got three or four shows over the next week through the Midwest and you can easily drive to them, hit them up by plane. And it, it's just, you know, 
it's beautiful out here in California, but shit, to go anywhere else in the country, especially to the East Coast, just scratch a whole day off of just traveling. When, when people are like, how did you see, because I've seen over 200 KISS shows. They're like, yeah, they didn't come to Detroit 200 times. And I'm like, yeah, but Saginaw. Yep. Cleveland, yep. Cincinnati, all the Ohio Dayton, cities, Chicago. Yeah, yep. I mean, I've I've seen them in Milwaukee. Yeah. Every one of those trips was under five hours going one I mean, way. I saw when I was in Chicago. I saw Kiss obviously in Chicago. Saw them in Peoria. I saw them up in Milwaukee. I went to Madison. Yes, even yes. even Chicago to Minneapolis. If you <laughs> drove, is a seven hour drive. It's a 90, not even 90 minute plane ride. So it's just, again, it was so, it was so nice. And, you know, Indianapolis, as we know, was always the center for all the KISS expos. There was always something going on in Indianapolis. And to get from Chicago to Indianapolis, please, that's a blink of an eye. Yeah, I, I mean, it was not uncommon to see a half dozen of the one tour. You know what I mean? Yep. It, it was just so easy to do. It was so easy. And plus, too, when they'd come back and do the the, the smaller markets, like I'd go see uh, Kiss and I've seen Kiss and Toledo a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, you know, over the years, and and uh, you know, it was just it was just so much simpler then. Plus, you know, it really wasn't Hamilton, Ontario, Midway. I've seen them in London, Ontario. I, you know, I'm, again, it's like London and then Hamilton and then Toronto. You know what I mean? Cleveland, Cincinnati. Uh, you know. Uh, just it's just so easy. You could just hit all these shows. Detroit is just perfectly based to do all that. To do all of that. Well, and 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 a lot of fans may not know this, but like when Kiss has Midwest shows, they will often base themselves out mm -hmm. of like Chicago. Um, you know, meaning if they've got a week, ten days, two weeks worth of shows throughout the Midwest, Upper Midwest. They just stay in the ho a nice hotel, five-star hotel in Chicago. They head over to Midway, hop on their private jet, fly to the show, and they're back. It is, it's so convenient for the band as well. Just over a half hour, you know, yep. on a private jet from Detroit. Yeah. So it's 45 minutes in a commercial. It's just under that in a private. So literally, you, you only have to be in the air for half an hour. Yeah. So, you know. So and, and, it, keep, and, keep, and keep in mind. Private jets, you don't have to deal with security. You don't deal with parking. Right. I mean, I mean, even even for me, like to go down to L.A. from where I live now, to, it's a it's probably a forty-five to sixty-minute plane ride, short plane ride. But I got to add on probably two hours on either end of getting to an airport, parking, getting out of that airport to wherever you want to go. Again, it turned, it's just, it's not, and I'm not making excuses. It's just not as convenient. It was so convenient to see shows when you live in the Midwest. So convenient. Yep. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things too. I was talking to a friend of mine, um, you know, all, all the artists that, you know, got, you know, we're at that age now they're stopping touring and, Within the next couple of years, you know, for the most part, it's all going to be. It's going to be a different. It's going to be different bands out there touring every summer than what you're used to. 
Well, you know, we, we, we touched on this. Um, I saw today, and I know I mentioned this on the show a, a month or two ago, because I saw that I saw the no original member Leonard Skinnerd uh, with ZZ, ZZ Top. Top. That same bill is come. They just announced an August date at Pine Knob for next year. And as I told you, you couldn't have got two more people into Pine Knob with a shoehorn just a couple months ago. There's a reason that that tour, again, with no original members, is is still doing that. It's still on the road because they're doing good numbers. And yep. There's demand. And again, it was it was an incredible concert. And, and I, I would encourage anybody to go to that show. It's a you want to have a great night of classic rock. I mean, Jesus Christ, both of those bands have their own classic rock library. If you you know, if you want to put it that way, the hits, the radio songs. Oh, my God. Both. Well, you, you know, talking about hits and, and radio songs, regardless of what. A lot of people think, and we know there's huge controversy these days about bands that have no original members, half the original members. You know, everybody loves to cry and complain that it's not worth it. But using Leonard Skinner as an example, the only reason they can still tour even without any original members is because the songs are that damn good. If if you had crappy songs, nobody's going to go out there to see a band like that. Foreigner, another great example. The Foreigner songs are incredible songs. Whether you like Foreigner or not, you cannot argue that they didn't have some of the biggest songs in rock. And they're doing great numbers on their farewell tour with basically no original members. Because these songs are so, they the songs connected with the audience, their fans, and that's what's bringing the fans back. Also, they're not both, they're not going back to see a band member; they're going back for the music. And both of those bands have the full blessing, and you know, work, you know, with the original surviving, yep. uh, you know, uh, members and their families in the estates. They, you know. Look, I will tell you, seeing kids, especially that, you know, I, I, I'll just speak of that because I was there. Everybody's singing Tuesday's Gone and Sweet Home Alabama. And I mean, kids, they know the song. They know the songs because they're in a lot of movies. They're in a lot of TV shows. They're part of the American fabric. And it was just cool seeing all these people getting to experience. And, and I said this, too. I, I, when I say this, I don't want to rehash everything I already said, but it's it's just a reminder. Had you closed your eyes, you wouldn't have known any different. That's how good they sounded. That's and again, all those guys who are out there, Ricky Medlock and and, and company, Michael Cardelloni, those are some of the premier players still out on the road today. It's no wonder why uh, this non-original. Leonard Skinner band sounds exactly like classic Leonard Skinner. These, these, these guys are at the top of their game and they love the music and that's the kind of music that they grew up on. And, and, and again, I fast forward that to if there ever is a kiss 2.0, I, I Mike, do you s still see that happening? 
I still see it at least being investigated. And but I don't, and, but and don't what, the tribute but, bands already do that? Why would well, your kiss? Why would you make an official sanctioned ones when there's enough quality ones currently on you know out out so, there for people to see? I mean, I mean, it comes down to if there's money to be made, there's some money that can be made. They will do it now if they can make money. Going, you know what? We're going to sanction some tribute bands, and we're going to work with them to make them. Even, I mean, listen, Mr. Speed is about as close to Kiss as you can get right now. But maybe with a Kiss involvement, it becomes even better. I don't put it past Kiss. I don't put it past any of these bands, and I don't fault any of them for at least thinking about it and investigating and maybe dipping the toe in the water to see. To see, because again, it all goes back to if there's people out there that love the songs, want to go see that show, why shouldn't you create something for them to consume? Well, Mike, I'm going to ask you a question. You're, you're in the San Francisco area, correct? Yep. Do you see Kiss tribute bands out there? Do you see any tribute bands that, even if you're not looking, you're going to run into an ad somewhere or because here in Detroit, I will tell you, again, I, I play in a tribute band. Um, it's it's like the thing now. There's, matter of fact, Halloween was yesterday. Last weekend, there was a couple different, couple, three different Alice Cooper tributes playing at some of the local places. There are multiple, and this is just in Detroit multiple acdc ones multiple sabbath ones multiple ozzy ones multiple motley crew ones i mean that's just here yeah no that is it's, it's that all too? over tribute bands are everywhere and it's it's partially and some of this comes from my experience of when i when i worked at the club and booked the club um you can book tribute bands fairly inexpensively they bring in all of the hit songs and they they will they will fill a they'll fill a bar they'll fill a small club no problem where original bands especially original bands out of the 80s may have a hard time doing that and again nothing against like we had Kip Winger on great guy but you know you go if if you book Kip Winger you're going to probably get you're going to definitely get his hits but it's not a set list start to finish of hits. It's going to be mixed in with other stuff that might be deep cuts, cuts you've never heard. But the audience that goes to clubs these days, they just want the hits. Give me hit after hit after hit. I mean, we've had them on the show before, and, and Tommy and I are friends with the band Hairball out of Minneapolis. I mean, Hairball is a tribute band. Not to one band, but to multiple bands. You know, they'll have a lead sing, various lead singers come out dressed up as Kiss. Somebody comes out as Ozzy. Somebody comes out as ACDC, Motley Crue, and they play nothing but the hits. And they put on a spectacular, big time show to the point that Hairball can sell ten thousand tickets. They can sell out an arena as a tribute band. When 
some of those bands they're paying tribute to be lucky if they could sell a thousand tickets it it and i'm not saying it's good or bad i'm just saying this is the reality the people that go out for entertainment to spend their their i don't know 25 50 bucks to buy a ticket to go see that band they want nothing but hits the whole night they don't want just two hits they don't want just three hits they want hit after hit after hit after hit. Well, that's and that's what the, tribute and cover bands do. But that's the genius behind the hairball thing. Obviously, through you and Michael, I became aware of them. But they'll take like Kiss, and they're not going to do Ladies in Waiting. They're going to do nope. Rock and Roll All Night, Detroit Rock City, Shout It Out Loud, Lick It Up, and then for for Twisted Sister, they're not going to do The Kids Are Back. Or they're going to play I Want to Rock. We're not going to take, you know what I mean? And then they'll yep. go to, if they do a Kip Winger thing, they're going to do the 17s. You know? And my point in that is this, like you said, Michael, they're not doing the deep cuts. You're going to get hit after hit after hit by, you know, 10 different bands. Yep. And they're going to have somebody that's visually going to make your, make you think you're seeing that. It's, it sounds deal. great. It looks great. you, and and again, at the end of the at the end of the night, isn't isn't it that all that matters is that the the customer leaves that venue going that was a fucking great time tonight, that mm-hmm. was the best twenty five dollars I ever spent fifty dollars I ever spent, we had a blast. That's it. At the end, that's all that matters is that fan left smiling. Amen. Yeah. So it's, I, I, I do think, again, I think you'll find more tribute bands in the Midwest. Again, just because of what we were talking about earlier, they can play so many different places in short drives. You know, there's not as many tribute bands out here in California because, you know, you might be big in the Midwest, but it's expensive to, Take your band out to California. It's not cheap. You got to make sure you book enough shows. And, you know, and, and let's be honest, you know, going from Southern California to Northern California, is kind of like going from Florida to New York. It's not an overnight drive. You know, it's, it takes more planning in order to not lose money when bands come out this way. But keep in mind, a lot of those tribute bands also, they're definitely not making the big time bucks. Hairball makes good money, I'm sure. I mean, when they when they can sell out a, an arena to 10,000 people, they can they can demand good money. But some of these bands are probably like 1,000 bucks, 500 bucks. Takes a lot of shows at that pay level to make a tour worthwhile. And it's easier to do that in the Midwest. You remind me of something funny, just the naivete of, you know, I would be the same way if I went over to Europe. I remember when we first started doing the, uh, what I mean doing is going to the early New York Kiss Expos, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, that's where I met, you know, Nico and, and, you know, Alex and everybody. But I, I just remember a couple of guys from, from, from Europe 
who flew over. And this is one of the early Kiss Expos. They're asking me about the rainbow. And I'm like, well, that's out in Los Angeles. Well, like, yeah, but we're going to rent a car. It would take about a day. <laughs> and I'm like, no. no, 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 you, you know, you're, you're, Europe is another, another unique situation where you can, you can live in England and you can go to France for the weekend. Like, like Mark lives in Detroit and go to Chicago for the weekend. That's what it is to them over there to go from Europe, from go from England to France or Germany. I, it, it, it's crazy. I mean, here's a, here's another funny example. I always tell people when I first moved out here to California and I'm in San Francisco, I quickly learned that so many tourists that come to San Francisco for the very first time go, well, we're going to California. I'm like, yeah, it's California. Oh, we got our shorts. We got our tank tops. You know, we got our flip flops on. We're going to go walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm like, no, you're not. What do you mean? I go, this is not San Diego. Yeah, but it's all California, right? I go, yeah, but San Diego is like Miami. San Francisco is like the Northeast. I mean, it's, you're going to walk, you're going to step onto the Golden Gate Bridge. You're going to be freezing your ass off after about two steps. You're going to turn around and you're going to run to that souvenir junk shop, which by the way, all they sell are hoodies. <laughs> stocking caps sweatpants why because all these tourists come out here thinking that northern california is just like san diego and it's like no it's not you're gonna it's a shock when you realize that it's not the same and you didn't pack for this weather although i did my homework it's going to be 85 tomorrow in los angeles so I'm well so, so los, An los angeles is uh, even los angeles Los Angeles is not Northern California. It's just not people. It's just, and, but to your point earlier, yeah, you know, some people come from Europe and they're like, yeah, we're over here in Florida. What's it take to get to Disneyland? Well, another whole plane ride, another whole day to fly, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> it, if they, if they it, get to it, your, it's, it's, it's not like driving four hours and hopping on a boat that take ferry that takes you somewhere. It's just, it, it's not that again, going all the way back. That's what was great. Like Chicago, Detroit, central to so much. And Detroit was even better because you were even closer to the New York tri-state area. It was a, to go from Chicago to the New York tri-state area was a, just enough more hours that it made that a little bit more challenging to drive. Hey, you know, the good old days, right? Amen. Um, so, so yeah, kisses, kisses in the midst of their final twenty-five days. Um, I mean, the you, the photos are out there; you can see it. The stage looks beautiful. It's it's still got elements of when the end of the road tour started, but it's got some new stuff. They've got a lot more pods. A new tour book. New, new tour, tour book. book. They've uh, they've added making love and they've added some incredible video effects for making love. Um, crowds seem to be loving it. I mean, they're packed every single night. Mm -hmm. it, it, it kind of it makes me happy to see that our band on their very last tour leg is going to go out 
on a high note. Oh, huge, huge! It's so good to see that. Yeah, every show is is selling out. Every show is you can't get two more people into the shoehorn. It's it's awesome. And let me tell you, you know, I'm looking forward to Friday night. A, I've never been to the Hollywood Bowl. My, I've driven past it a million times. But I've never been in it, so I'm super excited for that. And just today, um, on Facebook, I saw so many friends who are dry, who who are flying from the East Coast over there. And this is a funny story. Um, Alan's going to be there from from Japan. Wow, cool. <laughs> he's like, I'm, you know, I'm going to be in the states. And, uh, and I'm like, uh, are you, are you, he goes, I'm going to be in the States in the weekend, at the weekend. This was a couple of days ago. I'm like, are you going to LA? He's like, Oh, you got me. And I'm like, I'm going too, man. He's like, Oh my God, we got to hook up, you know? So that's the great thing really about, you know, when all this is over and it's going to be over before we want it to be yourself included, Michael, um, one, one month, one month from today, December 1st. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, all the people you meet, and I mean, not just friends, good friends and people that, you know, this, this doing this silly little podcast has changed my life in so many kick ass ways. And how did it start? Because we ran into each other at an expo expo. or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and just again people from all over the fucking world now <laughs> you know and all because of kiss i mean it's insane matter of fact i don't know if you heard my phone ding that was alex he, he wants me to pick him up something at a walmart because i don't have Walmart over in germany or was it i don't know it was, no it wasn't Walmart. It was target he's like can you get this for me <laughs> like, but that guys that's how fucking awesome this whole experience is you know, and, and the, you know, the best part, I mean, it, the silver lining, I shouldn't say the best part. Yeah, the KISS tour is going to end, but the friendships aren't. They're- I was just going to say this, all of this other stuff isn't ending people. It's not like when KISS steps off the stage after that final show at Madison Square Garden, that it it's all done, gone, everything stops. The only thing that stops are live shows from KISS. And depending on what really happens, it just could mean future tours will never happen. There still could be that one-off show. There could be a one-off appearance. But everything else that really, honestly, to me, has now made the KISS world even better, it's not just the shows. It's it's just getting together with KISS fans and hanging out. We've talked about it. The best part of a KISS Expo not necessarily the expo itself. It's not the guest. It's hanging in the lobby. It's sitting in the lobby for six hours and just talking to people that come in, check in, or going by to go get dinner. That's not going to end. I don't think that will ever end. Kiss is too big for all of that camaraderie to just disappear. Also, too, I mean, uh, Let's face it, Ace is already putting, uh, letting people know he's playing well into next year. He's got a new album coming out. And look, 
assuming everything is, and I'm, I'm telling you from my sources deep in the kiss world, this is it. Um, but who's to say that the Gene Simmons band isn't going to play a dozen dates next year. Paul or, Stanley or solo Stage. band. Yeah. Or even Tommy or Eric going to do, you know, individually or collectively or whatever, but there's still going to be things to go to. And I'm hoping this frees up people like Keith to, you know, put on a, you know, kiss expo next year, you know, the yep. one year anniversary of the end of the road tour and, you know, get some great tribute bands going and, you know, maybe a guest or two and all of us can flock down there, man. And, uh, you know, and have some fun and share our yeah, memories. It, and- that, that, that's part of the reason why I'm not nearly as sad that it's the end of the road, that these could be the last two shows forever, because I just, I feel like there's too much other stuff that is going to happen, can still happen. Again, it's it's not like this band has been around one year, and when they say we're breaking up, that's it, and you never hear from them again. This machine is going to be huge. It's going to be churning stuff out forever. Just be, I mean, listen, just because there's so many young fans, you know, it's a bit, listen, guys, it's a business. There's money to be made out there, and they're not going to turn away from opportunities. And, and again, it just may not include performing live or touring, but there's a lot that I think is going to happen. I think next year it's going to be the start of start of a new roller coaster ride. What's in store? I have no idea, but there can be so much stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so let's let let let's get into this. If you remember a number of months ago, I dug up uh, an old interview I did with Bob Ezrin. And we played that here, but we talked about it first. Well, we're going to do the same thing here. So Mark and I are going to chat just a little bit right now about Bruce Fairburn and the interview I did with him. And then you are going to be able to listen to, it wasn't a video interview, but you'll be able to listen to the entire about 53-minute interview I did with Bruce Fairburn. Um, So just to set the stage for this, This interview I conducted in February of 1999. Psycho Circus had just come out that previous fall in 98. A few months after this interview, sadly, Bruce Fairburn passed away. I don't know if this is the last interview, but it's clearly got to be one of his last interviews. And... I'm not aware if he did any other significant interviews about Kiss and Psycho Circus. I don't recall. There might have been mentions where he talks, you know, a paragraph or a sentence. But this was a 53-minute interview where I basically go through song by song and ask him questions. Now, why that, that information is important is I think you need, you the listener, need to kind of put yourself back in 1999 when you're listening to this. Because you're going to hear things where right now you're meeting and go, fucking bullshit. That's an absolute (laughs) lie. 
And yeah, because all these years later, 20 plus years later, we know everything that happened. Remember, if and again, Mark, timeline means everything. Mm-mm. If you were part of the timeline back in 98, sure, immediately fans were questioning who was on Psycho Circus. But the story that was coming out from everybody back then was it's the original four. It's the original four. It's the original four. The original four were in the studio. The original four recorded. The original four wrote. We know that's what the story was for years. Well, it's it's finally come out. I mean, everybody in KISS and everybody has now admitted that that wasn't the case. And we know that. So it makes this interesting, this interview, in my mind, all that more interesting to be able to listen to it in 2023. But remember, this was all being recorded in 1999, and it gives you an interesting insight and perspective, I think, into the marketing, the PR, the story of the album, everything that goes with it. And to some extent, this isn't unique to Kiss. Every band has their, quote, story for when their new album comes out that they stick to. Except a few years down the road, when they're done with that album, then they start telling the truth about who really played bass guitar and who really was the lead guitarist and who was really, I mean, God, you know, there's, there's some bands where years later we learn the guy who's listed as the producer on the album had nothing to do with producing the album. He was fired the first week into recording of the album. They just wanted to use his name. They used his name or, you know, they had paid him and contractually they had to put his name on there. But the assistant producer or the engineer ended up doing all of the work. You learn all of this stuff over time. So that's what makes this Bruce Fairburn interview, in my opinion, really kind of interesting. And, and the last little thing is I had thought this interview was gone. I thought it was lost when I had recorded this, it was up on kiss online. And, and when I stopped working with kiss online and they built a new website, they basically deleted the whole website. Everything that was on that original website that I built, all the photos, all the video, all the interviews, everything that was deleted, gone. Um, And I didn't think I even had a copy of this interview with Bruce Fairburn anywhere. And it was only after this recent move that I did that I was digging through my, we've done a few episodes here, digging through my box of tapes that I found a CDR labeled Bruce Fairburn. And I was like, holy shit, I found this interview. Because at least to at least to me, now you'll you'll have your thoughts after you listen to this, but it's still a kind of a critical pin in the history of KISS here. You know, it's 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 Bruce Fairburn. There's no denying Bruce was a major, major producer big producer i mean just go wiki him and you can see everything he's been involved in and worked on over his career you know it was psycho circus i mean this was this was huge and 
And to find this piece of history, I thought was pretty freaking cool that it's now here for everybody to listen to and take in. So saying all of that, Mark, what was your first takeaway as you listened to this interview? <laughs> as uh, as uh, you guys know, the we uh, Michael, Tommy, and I, and Lisa, we chat a lot. And... And when I mean chat, we always sending each other texts. And Mike asked me to to listen to this, and I said I'd get to it before the show. So I finally listened to it. I was on the road for work. I could not. I was like, I cannot wait to stop to text Michael. And the first thing I texted Mike is, by the way, just listen to the Bruce Fairburn interview. What a load of bullshit! <laughs> I couldn't believe that. Again, guys, this is something you have to remember. And matter of fact, uh, Gene Simmons has said this to my face more than once. It's show business. Show. Yep. Sometimes the show it's is about the story. <laughs> Sometimes yep. it's business that's in caps, but it's show business. And Mr. Fairburn was towing the line, man. Oh, yes. Because everything in that, it, not everything, but. Oh, my God. You know, because now we know that Peter only played on one song. Now we know that, you know, Bruce and Tommy played on this thing. And we know that he didn't listen to any demos that Peter Chris brought in. It, Peter was barely allowed in the studio. I mean, he sang, played drums on one song and sang on a couple songs. This was not a original member's team effort we know that now right which makes listening to the the company line if you will of course here in detroit we call that bullshit um <laughs> you know listening to the bullshit he's spewing and it's funny too because he tried to you could just hear him going in his head you can almost hear the gears turning going Oh my God, I'm lying like a motherfucker. But can oh, I, I know, like, like, <laughs> can when, I try when, when, and skirt something in here that maybe I'm just, you know, I'm just going to omit something so I'm not lying as much? Because let me tell you, you know, what he, that interview now, when you look back, it was, you could just tell it was scripted by, you know, Mercury Records and Gene Simmons and Paul Stan. Like, this is what you're going to say. You know, so it, it's here's what you're not allowed to talk about. And, yeah. and 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 listen, I don't want I don't want this to say that that Bruce is the only guy who does that. Oh, that that's <laughs> extremely common yes. for every band out there. It's like, OK, here's the answers. This is what we will not admit to. This is what we're going to say happened. This is that is that is typical of especially major bands, major releases where there's a lot of money invested. There is a story that needs to be presented. And everybody who is involved is told, you can't say this. Uh, listen, how long did the Kiss Army not know that Kiss Alive was not redone in a studio? The story for the longest time was it's a live album. It was recorded at Kobo, almost the whole thing. Yeah, it was live. Well, that's and, and 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 then then we learn, 
oh, well, it's live, but it was recorded at a few other shows, not just Kobo. Oh, and then we learned, yeah, that's true. But then we had to fix up some of the guitars and the overdubs because that. And then we learned, well, really, the only thing that's live on there are Peter Chris's drums. Everything else is redone in the studio. I mean, it's an we're using Kiss as an example, but that's not because Kiss is the only one that does that. Everybody does that. But it, it, if you, when you listen to this interview with Bruce, you'll get to the point where I'm like, can't remember how I worded. Okay, Bruce, it's the million dollar question. I've gotta <laughs> ask yeah. you this. He knew, and and listen, I can tell you up front, I did. I wasn't given any directions by the band. I wasn't given directions by the label management of what to say, what not to say. There was no questions submitted in advance to be approved. There was none of that was given to me. And remember, I was running Kiss Online. I was Kiss at that time for the website. Um, but I also knew I had to ask that question because that's the question back in 98. That was all over the internet, everywhere. And if I didn't at least ask it, even knowing in my head I wasn't going to get an answer, but at least I asked it, I didn't have to sit and take the heat of, you fucking weakling Branville, you didn't even ask him the question. No, I asked him, but I can't, I, I don't have, ab, I didn't have absolute proof to present to him, to contradict him. We all suspected it. And you know, I can't press him. It's not a court of law where it's like, you are, you don't know the truth. That's not going to happen there. It's like, I asked it. I gave him the chance to answer. You will listen to how he spun it. And that was one of those moments where I was like, yeah, you can hear him going, oh, I knew this question was coming. How do I answer this? I don't want to really answer it. It's, it, it, it makes it so much more interesting to hear that now. Well, I, one of the things that I enjoyed about the interview is because I didn't hear this interview till the other day. I, since then, since 1998, and probably all of you, have read two Paul Stanley books. And if you read the Paul Stanley books, you know that Paul did not like Bruce. They didn't get along. It didn't work out. At all. Now. Yeah. I said to Michael after listening to this, ah, this all makes sense. Bruce didn't like Paul either. And he takes shots at him. Listen to the interview. Listen to what he says. He heaped tons of praise on Gene. None called Paul's stuff cliche. And, and that was one of the things when I was listening to, I was trying to put myself in both places. And they were talking about Pledge of Allegiance to rock and roll. And Bruce was saying, oh, you know, it was cliche and everything. And I'm like, Bruce, rock and roll all night and party every day? That's Not like cliche. the most cliche thing you can think of. No right. one sells cliche quite like Kiss. I mean, that's, that's their they, career has been built yes. on cliche. Yes. Hold the exactly. trigger of my love gun. Oh, yes, exactly. I mean, you you didn't listen to Kiss because you wanted Dark Side of the Moon. You know what I mean? Right. You wanted to scream and shout it. And, you know, that's what you wanted. 
And that's what they gave us. And they gave it to us better than anybody in the world. And I found that funny because he starts talking about kind of like some deep stuff. And I'm like, look, I, I, here's another weird part just for me as a Kiss fan. I think all that stuff aside, I think Psycho Circus sounds amazing. I, I was listening yep. to it today knowing I've got a really weird take on this. And, and I've talked to enough of you fans at the shows and online and stuff. I think a lot of you feel like I do, um, or at least the, the many, many over the, the Kiss Cruises and Expos and you know online. It's a fantastic album, but it's I didn't like the way that it was released. I think some songs that were cut during those sessions should have made it in front of other songs. And and I have actually my version of Psycho, because I'm old and I still use an, an iPod, um, my Psycho Circus is unique to me to a, to a degree because I omitted some songs and I added some songs from both the Kiss box set um, and uh, through demos. And I absolutely love this record. Put it this way. Again, I love the way it sounds. I I I think had they chose some different songs, I, I think it could have been a lot better. And and I also think they should have done a couple of things to um to to make it better. And and, and I'm going to get into a little bit of detail there. Obviously, Psycho Circus is just an incredible kickoff i i'm gonna tell in my opinion i think psycho circus is like in the top 10 of the best kiss it's a, songs yes ever. it's one of kiss's best songs it's a it is a quintessential kiss song in my opinion I, I, again i don't you know i don't care that it came out in the late 90s that is classic kiss to me yep. everything about that song and that's one of the few times in the interview where bruce you know throw some light on Paul because there's a lot. Of, if you listen to what he says, he's sniping at him throughout this interview. He's sniping at Paul every chance he gets the story about how the psycho circus came to be the lead off track is, is, is like the only time that Bruce said, you know, Paul came to me because that Bruce went to the band and said, I don't hear a kickoff song. I don't, there's not a song that either Gene or Paul gave me. And of course, it's funny. He keeps throwing an ace or Peter. I'm like, come on, dude, you didn't fucking listen to any of Peter Chris's stuff. He, Gene and Paul brought this stuff and maybe to a small degree ace, you know, because he, he does talk about, you know, going through Peter's songwriting and stuff. And I'm like, you know what? Don't do that. No, you didn't. You know, and you can tell he's he's just scrambling to try and come up with things to say about that. Um and I, and you know, when I when I start talking about Psycho Circus in a few minutes here, you know, I'll go a little deeper into some of the A stuff. But he he says that Paul said, "Hey, let's go out to the car, and we'll listen to this song called Psycho Circus." And I think this is a great opener. And he, and and in Bruce's own words, he said, "We started laughing because we both went, this is it." 
and I think truly, man, that's another thing. I'd love to hear that demo, you know, because this is before. <laughs> that's something that's not in the trading world. I'd love to hear that. Um, assuming that story is true, but why wouldn't it be? Because that's when Paul brought that song to the sessions, you know. So anyways, um, you know, I think that's one of the greatest songs in the Kiss canon. And I will tell you, um, that's a song I look forward to live. I, I, I love the graphics. I thought that was, again, I thought Psycho Circus was great. It had the potential to be incredibly great. Um, but I think, you know, they, they did some things on there that kind of took it down a notch or two. And like I said, the way I structured it, I did it the way I think most Kiss fans, you know, maybe I'm bloviating a little too much, but honestly, I, I think, I think most Kiss fans would have rather have had just a straight up rock album. And, um, that's kind of what I did for my own listening experience. So, um, yeah, you know, I remember, I remember when I first heard Psycho Circus, the first thing that jumped out at me was why did they put within in on this album? Cause it stuck out so much over the other songs of, well, gee, within, you know, was a leftover from Carnival of Souls. And it, to me, sonically just didn't fit Psycho Circus, which to me had a much more commercial sound and feel to it. That was the first thing that I was like, I would have taken that out. There's, there's better songs that could have gone in place of, of, of within. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I remember taking away, and I don't think we got into this a lot in the interview, but it was briefly mentioned was, was the fact that the, the entire album is basically a, a, a concept album in a sense. And that Bruce, Bruce admitted to that. that. He did say, yeah, it is. It, it, you know, it's a song about his saying thank you to their fans. And, and that was something that I picked up as a fan when I was listening to it and then paying attention to the lyrics of, you know, psycho circus and we are one and I pledge allegiance and raise your glasses. I'm like, wow, this sort of feels like it's kiss saying thank you to the kiss fans through this album it wasn't just one song it was it was stretched through the entire album now it's not a concept album like the elder was it's not a i mean it's not even a threads there's there's a very loose thread that weaves through all of the songs and not enough not enough that you could you could just clearly call psycho circus a concept album and bundle it with other concept albums out there. But I found that interesting that there was that loose thread that weaved through all of the songs and Bruce acknowledged that. And I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. You know what? Um, See, I actually am a, well, number one, I love carnival and I love within, I think matter of fact, Bruce, Bruce heavily praises it. And there's a reason that it was the number, you know, the second song, you know, on, on the record. Um, I actually love that riff. 
I love the song. I love, I think Gene's vocals fantastic. My only issue with the studio version is uh, for those of you, if, if you're not out there, if you don't have the deluxe version of Psycho Circus, the one with the second CD, do you remember that? Right. It was yep. recorded yep. in Indianapolis. I mean, you can find this like at the Dodger Stadium show and stuff. When they play within, Ace has a separate solo section in that. Whereas, like on the studio record, it's just a da 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 da. You know that. Yep. It doesn't have a solo per se section in it, and I love the solo Ace came up with that he plays live. Again, these are things that you know. Once you've digested the record, and same thing with me. Like I said before, I'm about to get into the why I omitted some things and why had I. You know, if I had 2023 knowledge to bring back in time, I would have changed a few things to make it, in my opinion, even better. So I've got Psycho Circus um, on there. Uh, Within is on there. Um, I'm not a big fan of of Into the Void at all. I and it's funny because Mikey brought up on there that a lot of and that is funny. Like I don't. Well, you didn't know so. It's almost like you baited him in that interview, because what did you say about about um, uh, Into the Void? You're like, people are saying this is the one with the most kiss vibe. And we didn't know at the time that's the only one off original guitar, bass and drums was Gene Paul, Peter and Ace. That's the only song. So I just kind of find that odd that, you know, we're listening to this interview in 2023 Mike, you didn't know that that was the case then. We didn't know. Yeah, we're again, we're 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 fans. We're going off of what we hear and what we feel, and trying to get Bruce to give us a little more context to it. And anyways, I there now. If you have Ace's catalog, you know that he did. I think on the last record, the song "Sister" or the last one he did was "Spaceman." I think the one that uh, yeah. had "Sister" on it. There, all right. There's a version that Ace demoed during the Psycho Circus yep. sessions. Matter of fact, it's on one of Alex's great bootleg pieces from way back in the '90s. I know why they didn't use it. It's a far matter of fact. The I. I if you have never heard the demo version of sister that was, that was demoed for this era of kiss or psycho circus, it's better than the one that he put on his record. And I know why that they didn't use it because Peter couldn't have played. So it's got double bass in it. Um, the original demo in ACE. I mean, that would have been so obvious that it wasn't Peter where they kind of, had Kevin Valentine come in and play stuff that was Peter-esque. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, this would have been no way. But if you get a chance, that would have been Ace's best contribution had they had someone, well, Kevin Valentine could have played it or Eric Singer. Or they could have had somebody play that original demo drum pattern on there. Of course, everybody who even follows Kiss Me, I mean, you don't even have to be a drummer. You'd go, that's not Peter Chris. You know what I mean? Because he didn't play that kind of style. But that song, I would have replaced that song with, you know, I would have replaced uh, Into the Void with Sister, the original 
Uh, I think that song in demo form is just so strong. It's not funny. I love it. I, I love the demo way better than what came on, on Ace's record. So, um, but speaking of Ace, that's why I wanted to bring this up. The song that Gene wrote, and it was used as a B-side for the video, I believe. Remember that, Mike, the CD came with the yes. uh, Psycho That song, In Your Face, I think just fucking rules i i i don't know how that didn't make the record um ace does a great job on the vocal it's got an incredible ace guitar playing in it i mean it just that song gene nailed it and this is the whole thing you don't you know it's teamwork you, it doesn't matter who wrote the song that song sounds like an ace freely song that song just everything about it is to me in your face is awesome and i think ace nails the vocal and uh just everything about that song screams ace freely to me and another thing that i liked about it wasn't some hokey and this is that thread guys this is the thread oh ace has a song it's got to be about space or time travel or that that's that's one of the that with that and ace and same thing with peter that oh the drummer has to have a ballad and I've expressed this countless times, not just about Psycho Circus. I hate the fact that Kiss will do that. It's like, oh, okay, well, we've got to let our our lead guitarist have a song, so it's got to be about outer space. We've got to let our drummer have a song, and it's got to be a ballad. Why? If those songs aren't great, they don't deserve to be on there, in my opinion. If they're great songs, all for it. But you don't do it just because the lead guitarist has to sing about outer space. Nobody's expecting that. No fan is going to sit here and go, well, I'm sad that there's no song about outer space on here. Dude, yeah. if I don't. Again, yeah, that I, always I bothered wish, me. I wish Into the Void was not on the record. And in your face and sister work. So those are two things that, if you want to just call it Mark's version of Psycho Circus, would be different. Those are just two things. Um, you're skipping ahead, Mike, but I'm going to go there. The Peter Chris ballad. I know. I'm not, really? Hold on. I'm not saying it's not a good song. It is a good song. I do. Paul Stanley wrote the shit. Paul, great job writing that song. Shouldn't have been on the album. And another thing I'm going to bring up, both Paul and, and Peter beautifully, beautifully harmonizing on the um, on one of the lines. We dance the night away. I don't want Paul Stanley and Peter Chris singing they dance the night. And I don't mean that in, a, in, a, in any sort of sexual context. You know what? Peter should have had like a baby driver kind of song or hard luck woman or, or, or well, that's what I was. That's exactly what I was getting to. They boys and girls, they did this before with hard yeah. luck woman. You know what I mean? So here's here's where Mark's version of Psycho Circus. I think it's kind of interesting. There's a song called that Gene wrote because. If all the songs that I liked, which I think deserve to be on the record, it'd be a little too gene heavy. 
There's a song that I believe is also on Asshole, but they demoed it. Gene demoed it. Um, Sweet and Dirty Love. Mm-hmm. They should have let Peter sing it. Because he could have done that that screamy, scrappy sort of dirty love. You know what I mean? That that would have worked. And it's a cool shuffle. It's it's I'm like, now there to me should have been the Peter's Peter Chris vocal should have been sweet and dirty love. I, I think that and don't get me wrong, Gene does a great job. This that's the whole that's the weird thing about this. I love the way Gene sings it. I think he does a great job. But in order for the record to flow like a KISS record, and, and again, it's, it's, an, it's an equation they've used in the past, meaning somebody else wrote the song, Peter sang it, you know. Um, that's what I think they should have done here. They should have let Peter sing Sweet and Dirty Love and taken the ballad. And again, it's a beautiful ballad. But it doesn't belong on this record. It doesn't fit. It, the context of it, yeah, doesn't even work. It's, yep. it's like it's, it's as we said before. It's a turd in a punch bowl. It stands out. It doesn't, yep. it doesn't yep. need to be there. Well, let, let me as you were going over all of this, it just dawned on me. What would you think if they had Peter sing "We Are One"? I, I no. I'll tell you why. Um, Gene obviously wrote that with the Beatles in mind, and Gene does his sort of McCartney-esque vocal on that. And I think that one really, Gene really sells that one. That's really the essence of, you know, I think that song could have been on Gene's 78 solo record. It's It's got that Gene giving tribute to, to the Beatles sort of, and I oh, yeah. love that song. I I absolutely I absolutely love the song as it is. I have no issues with it. But as we're talking about Peter's style of singing, it seems to me that his gravelly vocals for a "We Are One" is not what I would consider a ballad. Um, it, it's not. But the reason that I said give him "Sweet and Dirty Love" is because it's a scrappy rocker, and that's where Peter shines. You know, uh, again, Baby Driver and and Hooligan, you know, I think that's where, you know, Kiss fans go, you know, get away. They, that's what they want, man. Yep. Peter could Peter could have nailed that. And and it's funny, Mike, that you bring up a song on the record. I think somebody else should have sang. So I think and again, Gene does an amazing vocal on journey of a thousand years. But again, because I'm not done with my song picks yet. If you, if, if, if every song that I think should have made the record would have, would have been a little too gene heavy. Now we already took one out of Gene's column and gave it to Peter. I think journey of a thousand years, Paul should have sang. Don't get me wrong. Love, love, love Gene's as it is, but they would have needed to give Paul another song. Um, Again, I don't really. What's the God? There is one song I can't. I put it this way: I don't like it, so I didn't put it on my version. There's another song, and somebody out there in in three sides lands going to scream it and type it in. There's another song that Paul has from the sessions. 
I wasn't crazy about it and it didn't make it on my, but a lot of fans like it. And I just right now on the top of my head, it's not, it's not coming off. So um, in my world, again, if I was Supreme ruler, I would have had uh pulsing a journey of a thousand years, but I do love the original. I love the way Gene sings it. But again, um, another song I would have added is I want to rule the world. Um, Gene Simmons vocal on that. I would have kept that as Gene's song. So um, I like that one. So I, I'm going to go down them really quick. So, so far, I have Psycho Circus is on there. In Your Face is on there. Ace Lee vocal. Within, Keeping, Gene singing. I think Pledge Allegiance to Rock and Roll and Raise Your Glasses are two just quintessential Kiss songs. Oh, they're Those perfect me, Kiss songs. That's what you, that's you would thing. think Kiss would do. Yes. Yeah, well, they did do uh, Pledge Allegiance in Australia, you know, a few years back. Mm -hmm. But and but that's, again, you want to talk about the snipe when you listen to the interview. Listen how Fairburn talks about both of those songs. Oh, they're cliche. Dude, what are you talking about? That, that's Kiss doing what Kiss does best. You know why? Because Paul Stanley wrote two of those, both those songs. And they're fucking everything that we love about Kiss musically i mean for me anyway i think paul knocks both of those songs just right out of the fucking park again as you can tell by my voice i'm i love psycho circus i just wish it was a little bit different um the songs that i like i i like a lot matter of fact i love so far like i said psycho circus in your face within pledge allegiance again i want to skip into the void uh we are one love it you wanted the best that's fun and mm -hmm. that I think that song, because wasn't that written in like '76 or so? Didn't didn't Gene want to do that sort of a song back then? It wouldn't have worked then to me anyway. This is the perfect vehicle for it because it's a you know reunion record, and I still am not to that point either because I want to talk about I maybe letting Peter play it a little bit more, and what I mean by that is this. For the live show, I thought Pete played Psycho Circus just fine. For the live show, and again, I have, I have the bootleg. We all do. We have the, the versions of them playing them on official Kiss releases. He played them well enough that they could have taken, done the take. I, I think they should have. Um, but I'm also going to be honest, as, as a drummer, and I'm not just saying this because he's a dear friend of mine, but when you listen to the original version of Psycho Circus, I love the drum part. When you listen to the version that Peter Chris plays like, and, and all you have to do is to, to, to hear me out, go to the, you can even go to YouTube, it's free, so you don't have to buy anything. Um, go to the the uh, the LA show, the Dodger Stadium show. No, Peter's playing that, he plays it fine. But Eric Singer plays that song fast. He really does. I mean... I like his drum part, which is slightly different from the original. It certainly leans more towards the original, towards Kevin Valentine's. But his feel on that, and, and again, listen, go listen to the original. Then listen to the one from Dodger. Then go, go to you know a more modern one with, with Eric Plain. I, I think Singer nails it. I just think he's, he's got the best feel for that song. But going back to, like I said, with Psycho Circus, I think they should have let Pete play a little bit, you know, more. Um, so uh, raise your glasses I have on there. Finally found my way. 
out. Um, Journey of a Thousand Years. Um, and I already said Sweet Dirty should be Peter and I want to rule the world. Uh, and here we go from the box set. Finally should have made its Kiss album debut. It's my life. You're never giving up on that. Still, the greatest blunder of their career is not releasing that on Creatures of the Night. It would have greatly helped everything. It would have done 10 times what I'd Love It Loud did. And don't go, oh, well, Wendy, oh, no, no, no. You, 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 if, if that's how you think, you misunderstand the time. Had that song come out in 82 with a kick-ass video, it, they could have they could have helped heal their reputation, much like Slade did when they were asked to play. Um, uh, my English friends would uh, the Monsters of Rock when it was either that or Reading, one of the shows that they they threw them on. You know, their career wasn't doing anything, and they stole the show because they're a great band. Kiss, I think, had that moment where if they were to release that. And, and, you know, did whatever they needed to do to get it onto radio. It's such a catchy song. Think back when you were, you know, because I would have been in 1982. I was 17. Hearing that It's My Life. That's what a great chorus. How would how that made you feel? And don't tell me because literally two years later, Lick It Up's all over the fucking radio. Now we know that, you know, they took the makeup off. So all of a sudden they're good, <laughs> you know, but. It's it's a better song. It's got a, a more sellable chorus. But anyways, enough about that. But I, I think they did record it as, you know, it's on the, the Kiss box set. That should have been added. So, um, you know, just in case you're, because I get these sorts of questions. So this is what my Psycho Circus would have been. Psycho Circus, In Your Face, Within, I Pledge of Allegiance, um, I would have had sister on there. We are one. You wanted the best. Raise your glasses. Um, Peter singing Sweet Dirty Love. Uh, Journey of a Thousand Years. It's my life. I want to rule the world. And if you noticed another song I took off, and this is why I had to give Paul. Yeah, I never liked that song. And I will tell you, I heard the 18 thing the first time I ever played it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is a huge rip off of Alice Cooper. And then lo and behold, not terribly long after they, you know, all that stuff. I just think that song's just a bad song. I'm surprised that that made it, honestly. Matter of fact, that the song that I can't think of is better than that one. I, again, the song's you, title. I you know, what, what's, what's sad, obviously, is is that Bruce passed away and that all these years later he doesn't have the opportunity to come out and talk about what really happened and it's and and some people will go well he probably maybe he wouldn't no that's not the case I mean look Michael James Jackson came on and he opened up as much as he could remember about working with Kiss I think if Bruce was around, we would probably have a little more clarification. But what all that leads to for me is, I think Bruce Fairburn was in a no-win situation. Plain and simple. When it came well, to it Kiss like, and Psycho Circus. Well, doesn't it sound like, though, that 
Gene was giving him kind of the, which is odd for Kiss, because you know, as Paul runs the band, he does, he has for years, yep. forever and ever. But didn't it seem like they, Fairburn seemed to have his way a lot of a lot of it though. Yeah, yeah, it 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 does. But and again, I think what he got himself into, and why I mean this was a no win for him, is not only the dynamics going on between the Gene and Paul and the Ace and Peter world, which, as a producer, that was a no win situation for him. It's absolutely no win. And then, I suspect there was some dynamics going on between Gene and Paul as well. You know, they may not have been. It's not news to any Kiss fan. Gene and Paul have their ups and downs throughout their entire career. You can go online and find videos from 92 where, you know, Paul's on camera taking a snipe at Gene who's sitting right next to him. And, you know, and and even when I started with Kiss, I remember, you know, I'd interview Paul and he'd make some comments about Gene where I'd be like, Really? You want that to go out on record? So, you know, maybe there was tension between Gene and Paul, too, and that now Bruce is like, well, you don't want to take sides, but at the but at the same time, you kind of got to go to a side that's going to help you get your job done, producing an album and getting it done. And I think, again, it's not news to anybody you take sides too much with one or the other of Gene and Paul and the other guy's eventually going to get pissed. And maybe that's what happened here. I'm pure speculation. Maybe Bruce and Gene had a better working relationship. And just because that relationship was happening, that hurt the relationship between Bruce and Paul. Or yeah, Paul that, was just like I, 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 I'm, I don't, I don't like Bruce. Why? Well, the truth is because he's working with Gene. I mean, yeah. that's why I think Bruce was kind of in. I, I let's put it this way: I think we got a a really great album, considering all of the behind the scenes internal bullshit that was going on in that band at the time. It could have, you know, that album could have come out and been just an absolute utter disaster. Very easy. But the fact that, you know, I'll sit here and say the fact that somebody like Mark Cicchini says it's a great album and you really love it. Keep in mind, there's a lot of fans who are just like, this is crap. This is terrible. This is too commercial. This is too 80. There's no ace or whatever. But I think it's still a really, at its core, it's a really good, well done. And you brought this up sonically; it sounds mm-hmm. great. It it's why I think Kiss needed to work with a real producer on their last two albums, just to give that sonic finesse that comes from a producer. I don't know. Maybe there's no producer capable of working the Gene and Paul world anymore, which which brings up a question. We know, and I think I brought this up with Bruce, 
Bob Ezrin was slated to start working on Psycho Circus, and he couldn't. He had to pull out because he had other commitments in other businesses. What would Psycho Circus have been like if Bob Ezrin was there through to the end? Because we seem to, we other than the disaster of the elder, Bob Ezrin seems to be the one producer that's quite capable of cracking a whip at Gene and Paul and getting them to do what needs to be done and having, and again, other than the elder seems to be a producer that has respect from both of those guys. What would psycho circus have been like? Would, would some of the songs that you were t- just talking about not made it? Cause Bob would have said, no way. I'm not putting that song on this fucking album. And I, I insist on Peter being more involved. I insist on it. Uh, Again, he played those songs well enough that, you know, I I could see maybe even embellishing maybe on some of the the Tom Tom stuff that, uh, you know, because that's one of the things that I think Kevin Valentine did on purpose, especially on Psycho Circus. He kind of made it sound, you could tell they're like kind of, here, you know, I'm obviously, I know Kevin knows Kiss's catalog. Oh, speaking of which, that's another thing. Fairburn was never a Kiss fan. Okay, no, you could get you could get that out of yeah, when I was talking that, to him about yeah. his 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 history as as of Kiss. He had no understanding of Kiss. It was <laughs> it was a great working relationship for him to be able to produce Kiss, but he didn't know Kiss. And have the love of Kiss, like somebody like Bob Ezrin. Yeah, you could tell this was just a paycheck for him, meaning he thought it was going to be a big payday. And maybe it was. I don't know. Um, Because I don't he again, you have to read between the lines. I think his tone and the things that he said, he kind of looked down on Kiss. Um, He's he didn't say that. But I think when you're listening to it, and this is very early on in the interview, because that was one of the first questions you asked was, yeah. you know, we, are you a Kiss fan? And you, you could tell that he didn't. Yep. He, he had no fucking clue. I do think maybe because he did mention Destroyer. I do think Gene and Paul probably said here, listen to this. Listen to this. This is this is, you know, the one that we want to kind of match. Sonically, and, we want we want a bookend to Destroyer. Yes, because he couldn't talk about anything else, and and there's that's not it. Kind of like we said, Mike, it's show business. He wasn't going to go. Ah, oh, fuck! I don't know any of their songs. They are a joke band. He wasn't going to do that. It because it, it didn't serve. You know, it didn't help him, and it didn't help his client. Um, it's it's disingenuous. And I think you can hear him being disingenuous when you when you when you listen to the interview. I do think everyone should listen to this interview because everything that you've just heard Mike and I speak about, you can put it into context when you listen to this. And I think it's going to really help you shape that period. It's also going to you know shine a light on you know some of the crap you always kind of think exists, but you don't want it to. You don't want to think of it that way, but it does. Well, no, it, it, it helps you realize that even today, 
pick an artist that's got a new album that just came out or is coming out in six months. And when they do an interview and talk about their album, who was I just, I was just chatting with somebody online about this. Um, God, I can't remember what artist it was, but I basically said, everybody talks about their new album being their best album. We've said this about Kiss many times. Shut up with that stuff. You're never going to have an album 40 years later be better than your best, most classic album that you released 40 years ago. Sure, you can use that as inspiration, but don't fool, don't think we fans are stupid enough to sit here and go, you know, Gene said this about revenge. It's as good as Destroyer. It's our best album ever. It's a great album. Is it better than Destroyer? No. Is it like Destroyer? No. It's great on its own. So I I'm I I I'm just I I've gotten so tired of hearing artists spin that story when their new album is being promoted. Because you gotta understand. It's all about sales. They're going to say whatever they need to do to get you excited, to get you to want to buy it, to get you to stream it, to go watch that video, whatever it might be. That's what their goal is. And when they're done trying to promote and sell that album, eh, then let the truth come out. It's not going to hurt us now. It won't hurt us two years later. It won't hurt us 10 years later. Surely doesn't hurt you 20 plus years later because You know, the people you're talking to now about something that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, they weren't even around when that happened. So it means nothing. You know, us sitting here talking about timeline of Psycho Circus in 98, how many of our listeners weren't even around in 98 when all of this was happening? They're going, oh, okay, no biggie, whatever. I mean, you've got to keep that in mind, not with just kiss but every band every producer they're they're out to sell this as great and i get it nobody's going to come out and say gene simmons isn't going to say revenge sorry you haven't heard it yet it comes out next month but i don't think it's one of our better albums that's never going to be said never be said it's always going to be a great album it's always going to be sounds so great it sounds so classic you gotta take all of that by every band with a grain of salt doesn't mean they're outright lying to you but let the let the music itself stand on its own don't let somebody telling you it's supposed to be as good as something in the past listen to that album and then make your own decision don't get me wrong. It, it, it may be to you later on, because I think if, if, how do I, how do I put this? I, I, so, so let's just, just, just to stay with Psycho Circus. Psycho Circus is still in the cell list. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it wasn't a, nearly as big a hit as, say, Tears Are Falling wasn't as big a hit as you know hard luck woman but 
there's a reason that it's still there. I think the guys, meaning Gene and Paul, it still means something to them. And it connects to them. It connects to the fans, I think. It's a, yeah, it, yeah. And, and that's it, where I was getting at. I, I think it really does. I think that song, because, you know, that era was, I mean, especially the reunion tour itself was such a huge success. You know, they, they, they put that out. And I think they were probably a little underwhelmed with how the, the record you know, was received um, because it wasn't a multi-platinum sort of thing. And keep in mind at the time, you know, bands like Aerosmith were still. Well, I guess that's not true, is it, Mike? Because, no, you know, keep in mind when this came out at end of 98, album sales had pretty much had pretty much died. Now, it, it was only a few years earlier that it was still happening. So maybe their expectations were different. But, you know, remember, they they sold like 250,000 maybe on the first week. And it and that still only got them what to number three. Two, no, it's number two. Two. Because two. Boob, boob, wasn't it? Michael, Michael Buble came oh, in. Oh, no, that num- was Sonic Boom that was held off because of Buble. Not Psycho Circus. So, so Psycho Circus, I think only Circus was three. Three. Debuted yep. at three. That alone, I think, was a bigger disappointment that it didn't get them a number one album. But times were really changing, 98, 99. Album sales were completely changing. Yeah, streaming wasn't here yet, but it was digital downloads. It was MP3 files. Um, you know, the internet was just exploding, you know, they had to contend with psycho circus was starting to leak on the internet. Um, certain people got the song and gave it to radio stations to play before they were supposed to play it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I still have the, uh, the cease, uh, the cease, and the cease and desist, and desist letter that station got because Mark gave him the single. <laughs> um, yes, Allegedly, <laughs> you know, but you know, the thing that sticks with me about the entire album is, as a fan, and I remember this from when it first came out, and it still resonates with me. It feels like it's a heartfelt thank you from the band to their fans. Whoa, and we talked about that through that fine weaving of, of, uh, you know, a concept through it. It really felt like a thank you. And to some extent, it would have been a great final album. Like right now, end of the road, then you release Psycho Circus, and it's an album that says, thank you. We just wrapped up this amazing tour. Thank you to all of our fans. That was... That was special about that album to me, you know, because you listen to the, you really got to listen to the lyrics, read the lyrics and you'll, you'll, you'll start understanding what they're saying from song to song. And yeah, maybe Bruce thought it was cliche, but I don't care. I, I remember when I was running Kiss Otaku and, and Psycho Circus was being released, I arranged and planned out 
around the country, around the world with fans on the internet, that the day the album comes out, let's all raise our glasses and have a toast to kiss for a new album. To me, that was just absolutely perfect. That's what Kiss was about. That's what they are about. Raise your glasses. Have a good time. You know, be thankful. I think Psycho Circus, again, to this day, still has that. Could we change songs? Yes. Could there be different players? Yes. But again, I think for all of the bullshit that was going on that we've now learned, that album turned out pretty phenomenally well for all of what was going on in there. I mean, you know, we now know the tension between Gene and Paul and Ace and Peter was just huge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to your point, was Bruce actually listening to demos from those guys? He was listening to the demos that Gene and Paul brought him from those two guys to listen to. It wasn't like, (laughs) yeah, it wasn't like Ace walked into the studio and just sat down with Bruce by himself and said, here's 20 songs. I can't imagine that ever happened. It was, hey, Gene and Paul, Ace Fraley here, here's 20 songs. Gene and Paul go, there's one we like. We'll give it to Bruce to listen to. You know, really quick, Mike, before we go, because I got to get running here. Um, that, That graphic you used for the interview that G, what is it? Uh, what's the name EQ, of the mag- you, you, Was that EQ Magazine or Mix EQ magazine? magazine? EQ. If you get a chance, read that because I, I, I that that was a fascinating article because I hate to say it this way because this bothers me, but he was talking about Peter's drumming being just okay for Kiss. Look, man, if you don't like the way the guy plays, say so. But, but, give me an example. Because I don't like when people do that. That drives me crazy. Um, I'm no fan of, of how Peter played in, later in his career, but I'm a huge fan of the way he played during in, the 70s. In uh, his prime, he oh was. Oh, my God. The, the guy he was perfect play. for the band. Yes. Perfect. But, I mean, he was, uh, again, he, you know, he played very well. Those records speak for themselves. It wasn't until later. I mean, let's face it, to me, from 79 on, he, it, it, and before I get lots, because I always do whenever this happens, guys, look, I got enough fucking, I got enough videos and audios. Okay. I, I can pick apart tons of shows. It's just bad. It's like really bad. And it just is. Okay. So you don't have that with, with Eric Singer. And and again, I'm just speaking strictly as a drummer. And again, I don't mean to pick on Eric Carr, but his tempos were insane at times. Um, but Peter from 74 through 78. You know, and dynamite. maybe maybe Bruce said that from some to some extent because he saw Kiss as more of a metal band, and they should have had a more traditional metal drummer. Which we know Peter was never a metal drummer, no, but that's what no. made that's what made him and Kiss during the seventies so special and unique was Peter's drum style that he brought to a band that was loud and heavy. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I get into this because I'm a drummer, so I talk. Joey Kramer had more of a soul style that you know 
worked in Aerosmith. Aerosmith didn't have the John Bonham big beat, you know, sort of drummer either. You know what I mean? It, both of those bands, and, and incidentally enough, they're both two two of my all time favorites. By the way, who's keeping score that I did mention? Aerosmith is. Uh, let's see, but but really, the drummers helped define the sound of the band because they weren't using in in a hard rock context. They weren't using a, a Bonham esque sort of player. Yep. They were yep. using you know again. Peter was more. Uh, you know, uh, Gene Krupa influenced where, uh, you know, and Joey Kramer was more fabulous flames. And, you know, uh, that's that's uh, the rhythm section from James Brown. That was, you know what I mean? And it helped those loud guitars sound a little different or the what they had to play to. And, and again, I don't think Peter gets enough credit that way because and, you know, it helped define the sound of the band again, much like Joey Kramer helped define the sound of Aerosmith. They didn't have a quintessential hard rock drummer playing essentially hard rock music, and and I think that's one of the things that just makes those two bands sound great to my ears. You know, um, great sound, great songwriting with cool drumming. Um, yep. You know, well, so. let let's 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 wrap up our discussion. We're going to lead into the Bruce Fairburn interview, which will go right to the end of the show. Um, but again, I want to just stress: keep, remember, this interview was in 1999, 24 years ago. Okay, so yeah, you're going to sit here and go, "That's a lie," and that's stupid, and he's wrong about that. Yes. We know that. We know that now. We didn't know that for sure back then. And he was promoting an album that had just come out a few months earlier. His job is to make it sound like it's great and everybody's involved. Let's remember that was back in 98, 99, the reunion album. That's how it was promoted first album all the kiss members got together and have recorded in years that's the story that was being sold back then we know it's a lie but that's what makes it so interesting to listen to this now it's because we now know the truth and we learned so much more about it but you're getting a peek back into history here 24 years ago you're going to listen to the producer of Psycho Circus go through song by song. And listen, he was gracious. He gave a lot of his time to talk about this. So give it a listen. Homework. We'll give you your homework now. So when you're done, what did you learn? You know, keep that in mind. Did you learn something new about Psycho Circus by listening to this interview? What did you find interesting about what Bruce talked about through that interview? Um, I think it's just a great time in history that we were able to thankfully find and put out here for everybody to relive, especially, I mean, it's 24 years ago. We got, we got listeners who weren't even born when Psycho Circus came out. And I've talked enough. I've talked to enough of you 
I'd like to see what you think, Psycho Circus, what songs. I don't remember if you think it's perfect the way it is. Say this, Mark, I think it's perfect the way it is. Or because there's enough of you. What would you change? Spoken to, what would you change? And and of the three songs that I mentioned, Into the Void, um, I finally found my way. And uh, I'm 18. Oh, I'm sorry. Dreaming. Did, uh, <laughs> how do you feel about those three songs? Um, yep. Do you think they deserve to be on the record? I'd love to hear from you. So. Yep. All right. So let it roll. 53 minutes of Bruce Fairburn. And we will see everybody next show. week. Visit threesidesofthecoin.com. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow and rate us on Spotify. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate What kind yourself. of a, uh, a fan of KISS would you describe yourself? I, I would say that up until the point that I started working with the band, I was a, kind of a, a passive fan. I, I, I was a fan because, you know, they were so outrageous, and everybody knew that they had the most spectacular, you know, show on the road, and that they were doing all kinds of crazy and wonderful things and so i was always on top of that and you know i was kind of into a few other tunes but i wasn't uh a diehard fan that went out and got every kiss record you know when it hit the racks but they're always important you know to me because being in the business uh, you know you you kind of stay well aware of everything that's going on and they were definitely going on you know for a long time and really serious and especially when they they did their comeback you know, everybody in the business kind of was knocked on their socks uh, when it happened. So it, it, that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I was then, but now I'm a diehard fan. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've got the, I've got the disease. So, um, yeah, what, what Kiss albums, if any, did you own then before working with them? Well, I have to admit, you know, I don't own hardly any albums. Uh, forget about Kiss. I don't. Collect that many albums. I had Destroyer, okay, and you know that because that was the one that I, I really enjoyed most of that ilk. But you know, I don't know. I'm a funny kind of guy in in those kind of terms. I don't have a lot of CDs and I don't have a lot of albums. Um, and, and don't ask me why, but I just don't. I, I kind of when I make a record, I you know kind of get into doing. The music that that's there, working with the bands that are there, and I've got so much music in my life that the last thing I want to do when I get home from the studio is go, you know, put on, the, you know, a, 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 an Iron Maiden record or or anybody's record for that matter. Mm-hmm. So so I don't I don't have a lot of records around. The records that I do have around are kind of more obscure stuff, uh, you know, some Miles Davis stuff and uh, you know off the wall kinds of things. Right now. As a producer, before before you started working with the band, as a producer, how did you view Kiss? You know what I'm saying? Yes, of course. As a producer, I, I was aware, and, and from having listened to some of the records, that, you know, really fine uh, sound quality was not something the band was known for. In fact, they weren't known particularly for their songwriting or the the musicality of, of the songs that were on the record, although there were some great songs that came out of it from time to time. They were more known as a, as a stage show and, and as a, 
a, a live band. So, you know, that's kind of what I knew about them. And, uh, you know, I had uh, talked to guys, and from when I'd seen them, you know, I, I realized that, you know, they weren't exceptionally gifted uh, musicians, very, you know, very capable players. And, um, you know, but the, the real thing was their their show and, and um, you know, kind of what they brought to the stage in, in, in terms of their makeup. And, and, and that's not to say, you know, they didn't have some good songs in there as well, but, you know, when you're a producer and you're looking at different bands or you're aware of different bands, of course, you you, you know, you think of them like you, I think you're, you're asking me, that you look at them from a, from a production point of view. Now, they had some very creative production ideas, you know, from time to time in different records, and and that was great. And um, you know, some of the stuff that that Ezrin had done w- was pretty interesting. And so, uh, but that's kind of a, how I viewed them before I started to work with them. You know, they and it was a lot of it was just by reputation, and um, you know, word of mouth that goes around. And you know, what's Kiss like to work with? And you know, what 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 do they do? What do they like? You know, how do they do it, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Was there ever any time in the past where you were up for consideration to produce another Kiss album? You know, I have no idea. You'd have to ask Gene. Okay. <laughs> no, it, it, it hadn't gotten to the point where they had been talking to you, let's no. put it that way. No. Okay. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, I may have been scratched from several lists and, and not know it. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm glad I wasn't scratched from this one. <laughs> now, when, when this opportunity presented itself to you, um, how I mean, how did you, as a producer, feel like? Okay, I definitely, no questions, want to do this. Or did you have some questions, some reservations? Were there some issues that that came to your mind when all of a sudden the opportunity was there to produce a Kiss record? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's issues that that come to mind with with any band I work with. You know, I don't care if God came down and said, you know, you want to make a record, I'm doing a solo record. I still have to <laughs> ask myself the same questions. First of all, God, do you have any good songs? And, uh, you know, that's one thing. I, I need to know about the dynamics of the band, how everybody works together and how that's going to work. Um, uh, because you can't make a record, I don't care who you are, unless you've got good songs to work with or potentially good writers that know what they're doing. Or a band that is all headed pretty much in the same direction and, you know, is not going to fall apart on you halfway through the record and have the thing turn into a monumental disaster. So those are the two questions that, you know, I talked to Gene and Paul about a little bit before we went in on it. Just on, for face value, of course, I was really excited about doing a Kiss record because they're they're a legendary band and, you know, I just really wanted to to do a record with them just to you know be there and and uh, be part of of the of the tradition so but as it turned out after talking with Paul and Gene and Ace and, and uh you know Peter that yeah you know everybody was going to go go with this and and that there were some good songs on the table and there was the promise of of some more good writing coming up and they were they were very keen on doing what they were doing and so yeah, I was uh, definitely convinced. Now, once once you were picked and and you were in as the producer, was there any type of of research or background preparation that you then went into to to get yourself ready? Yeah, I mean, I tried to, you know, go back and listen to Kiss music. I tried to get 
a hold of, and Gene was very helpful there. Lots of history on the band, and you know, talked with the guys about where everybody was coming from musically, and you know where they wanted to see this next record go because it, it obviously, you know, Kiss could go in a lot of different directions. Some of them wouldn't be as successful as others, especially in terms of Kiss fans. And so, you know, we talked about that as part of the research, just to determine the direction of the record. And, and of course, you, you, you kind of discover that a little bit as you go along, making the record as well. But, you know, I tried to kind of immerse myself in, in, in Kiss world as much as I could before we went in and, and, and did the record. And, you know, I, I kind of do that with every band I, I work with just you know it, it's homework and you know it, it's great fun to do that mm-hmm. now did was there anything that you approached differently working with kiss because of their stature or everything you've already talked about that was different than any of the other acts you've worked with in the past uh, well every record's different um just because it's in a different maybe in a different situation of course different personalities involved and everything and no i was i you know i i i was prepared to kind of face anything when when we got going on it but as it turned out the guys were were right in the same pocket and on the same page as as i was in terms of how i like to make my records and you know the kind of hours that everybody liked to work and and the way everybody approached things you know it wasn't like you know peter says well listen i only record drums if they're hanging from the ceiling you know <laughs> or you know gene you know I, i'll only use this particular bass and i'll only record from you know midnight to three in the morning there was none of that everybody was very you know um cooperative and, and we everybody saw eye to eye kind of on where things were going so that was great i didn't have to kind of you know do anything you know that i wouldn't normally do in making a record you know of course you right. you, you adapt and to the different characters in the band and you adapt to their you know everybody has a different style of working at things and you know if you're a good producer you understand that early on in the game and and you work with it and and so that they're comfortable and because you're after all you're making a kiss record you're not making a bruce fairburn record with kiss playing Mm -hmm. so in that in that kind of context you know i I, it was great i was really lucky Mm -hmm. now gene and paul especially have experience uh as producers i mean they've done a number of albums you know kiss albums and, and outside albums yeah how did that fit in to the mix of working with them as opposed to a band where you know you've got four guys who are just musicians and and don't know the producing side of it yeah well you know it's a double-edged sword um because sometimes guys can can that have had some experience can be a problem because they they you know they know their way of doing it and if you don't do it their way they sometimes think that it's not good um and you know that can be a problem but in the case of you know with gene and paul they took a great attitude they said look this is your record fairburn you know you can you know hang yourself with it or you can make a great record and we're not going to get in the way unless it looks like you know it's going south at 120 miles an hour and and you know we're headed for the ditch and so they were very supportive I found it in, in all the kind of aspects of the production, and I had the sense that 
Gene especially knew what I was going to do before I did it. And he anticipated ahead of what was going on. So, very, you know, if there was going to be a problem, he was on top of it. And luckily, we didn't have any big problems. And so I think for him it was a a more relaxing kind of record. And as a producer, he felt confident, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, but he had confidence in what I was doing to the point where he could relax and think about other things, about, you know, writing and, and lyrics and singing and, you know, you know, manufacturing kiss cars and all the fun right. stuff that he's, you know, he enjoys doing. And that, you know, both Gene and Paul kind of left the production to me. Now, there were obviously times where, you know, you know, everybody's welcome to put, you know, suggestions on the table. And so Gene and Paul, when they would come in with suggestions or ideas, they were always, they weren't stupid ideas. They were really good ideas because they knew whether they were going to work or not based on their experience in the studio. So, you know, I really, uh, it, it was great. And, and it was fun sometimes because Gene would, I, I'd come in, you know, and he'd arrive a little early or something. And there he was, you know, his hand on, sitting at the at the desk and the fucking speakers would be flying off the wall and he'd be sitting there pushing faders and whoa, you know, and, and just having a great time and, and totally in a trance and just, whoa, you know, going at it, you know. <laughs> it was great. I'd stand at the back and then after he's done, he'd turn around and go, Oh man, I needed that. That's great. <laughs> and go, you know, sit and, and do his regular thing. So, you know, but it was it was he was a great guy to work with. And um, you know, if he ever wants to co-produce an album, he can certainly call me up, and I'd be happy to be his right arm, right hand side, anytime he wants. And and the same with Paul. They're you know they're just really very knowledgeable and, and uh, good guys, and didn't let it get in the way. Cool. Um as a producer you you yourself are pretty much an artist too i mean you're creating something you know you're you're yeah. taking what the, the the musicians are but you're creating something out of it were there any points in individual songs or the whole recording process where you had to kind of say look i got to stop we have to stop it it you know we can't keep tweaking with this song otherwise as an artist you know artists they will always tweak something oh. they're never done there's never, always more work. Yeah, is it was were there certain points where you said, "Look, this song is done. Let's stop tweaking with it." Yeah. Oh, sure there is. Uh there was a couple of situations you know in the record where from an overdubbing point of view, it could have gone on and on and got bigger and bigger and bigger and huger, you know, like Journey of a Thousand Years, for example. It's one of those kind of songs mm-hmm. that you could produce until the day you die. And um you know, part of the job that I have as a producer is knowing, you know, when to pull the plug. Say, hey, listen, we're done. If we do more to this song, if we put more parts on, it's just going to go downhill. So, uh, you know, that's part of what happens. And, you know, sometimes there's a situation that, you know, I guess producers are, are, you know, part arrangers and part writers and, and part singers and part everything because they have to understand the whole process of making the record well you know as a writer there is if i put my writing hat on there were songs that would come up where you'd have to say look this song isn't going anywhere not only is it not gonna finish it's not gonna start because it's not good enough go back and rewrite it or go back and write something else that's better or that it's too you know left field for the record or right field for the record you know what we're trying to do is do this and this song while it's a great song just doesn't fit with the overall 
game plan. So, you know, you, you get into that kind of a situation as well with the various writers. Some writers don't like that. They really feel threatened as as an artist. Well, you don't like these lyrics? God, they're, you know, they're, they're very personal. The best thing I ever wrote, and, you know, I, I you know, they, they take it really personally. Gene and, and Paul, on the other hand, were really great, very professional. Oh, well, you don't like this? Okay, forget it. Here, try this. Oh, you like that? Okay, you, you like that? You don't? You want a different course? Okay, listen, I'll come back tomorrow with another course. See if you like that any better. You know, don't like this lyric? Oh, no problem. I hate it too. Here, let me try another one here. Let's. I'll bring you something back after dinner and see what you think of that. So that was great. I mean, it was really a very uh, refreshing and creative space to be in with, with with a band so that you're not fighting about every word in every song or, or fighting about every song on the record. Guys just won't let go of this, won't let go of that because they feel so attached to it. With Gina Paul as writers, you know, it, it was really a, a very refreshing uh, experience. Mm-hmm. And I have to give them full credit for it because, you know, it's easy to say, uh, I don't like this. Well, okay. Why don't you like it? You know, and then you have to explain yourself and justify your reasons. And then, you know, they either buy into it or not. Right. Um, You've been living with Psycho Circus now for some time, like everybody else. Um, Is there anything on it where you wish you had gone a little further as an artist and tweaked something just a little bit more or changed it now that you've listened to it and, you know, its entirety as it's out there for the general public? Well, you know, it's kind of records are kind of like snapshots. You know, you expose a, a situation or a, a you know a period in a band's musical development for one period of time, short period of time. Say, here's where it is. If you go back and in retrospect say, well, you know, if I had another chance to take that photograph or if I'd shot it from a different angle or whatever. Of course, you know, you'd always do it a little differently. You know, you'd always go back and say, gee, you know, if I'd only put another uh, harmony part in the chorus here, or, or, you know, this chorus never really did make it, and, and, you know, we shouldn't have had it on the record. For me, I don't look at it like that. I I look at Psycho Circus as being a a really legitimate snapshot of where the band was musically at that point in time. Um, and, And I can't really point to anything that, you know, I would sit back and, you know, I, I, I wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, God, the vocal and raise your glasses, you know, we should have done it. Right. It, you know, it, it's, I just don't do it. When I finish the record, I go and I, I walk away from it and, you know, then it becomes the record of, it's not my record anymore, it's it's the fan's record or, or whoever's going to buy and listen to the record. And, mm-hmm. and, and they, it's their opinions that, that really, you know, you know, take the day or or not, and uh, you know, I was really happy with the record when it was all put to bed. And you know, if we make another Kiss record, or if we made another Kiss record, Psycho Circus Two, starting tomorrow, well, it would be different. And you know, I would build on what I know about the guys and how how their music works. You know, and it would be a different record. But I I, I certainly don't look at Psycho Circus and you know, in my mind reproduce any of those songs okay when you entered the studio with kiss uh how much material was ready to go versus work in progress or stuff that had to be written in the studio you know how ready was the band to just walk in there and record 
in various stages. Um, Gene is like the guy you go to school with, you know, where you get homework assigned on Monday and it's due Friday, and he's got it done on Tuesday, you know. So he's a guy who's always way ahead. So when I walk down to L.A., Gene had a, you know, three or four cassette tapes full of tunes. Paul, on the other hand, only had few snippets of ideas and things. Ace, he had three or four things that he'd been working on, you know, back east with, you know, as, as part of different uh, projects and different groups of musicians. And and Peter had a few things too, but weren't they weren't really sketched out yet. So everybody was in a, a different state, really. But I I could hear enough in the things that Gene had. Okay, we've got something to build on here, and. You know, Paul sung a few things in my ear, so I could tell a little bit about where he was going to go. So, Paul was the guy who came in with the songs. He's a, what I call a, a pressure writer. His best stuff is done, you know, not only when his back's up against the wall, when 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 he's pushed, you know, he's two inches into the wall. Then he's ready to go, and he comes up with with songs like Psycho Circus and you know stuff like that, and. You just have to realize that kind of writer he is and know that he's going to come in with it. And, and Gene was always totally, I, you know, I got a little worried. I'm like, God, you know, what's Paul going to, you know, what's going to happen? How's he going to, Gene was always very calm. Listen, this happens with Paul. This is how he writes his best stuff. Don't worry about it. He'll come in with it, and it'll be great. And he did. And um, so there, there are two different kinds of writers. And, and um, where Gene will, if you say, Gene, you know, we're, really looking for something like this or something like that he'll go back and he'll go back into his catalog of ideas and he'll put something together overnight and re-edit it and come back and there it'll be tomorrow you know and whereas paul he takes longer in developing his song ideas and and ace has a lot of different things going on with his writing and really with ace it's about going through what he's got and he loves everything you know because he's the ace and uh you know, a lot of it's really good and, and you know, in different contexts, but you really got to try and find the right ace songs for the record and that really, you know, show him off being what he's doing. Because ace has a lot of different sides to him as a musician. So he can do, you know, a lot of different kinds of things, but not all of them are right on the money for, you know, ace and uh, as his part of Kiss. And Peter... You know, he's another different kind of writer. He writes a lot of different melodies and and uh, different kinds of things. And there again, Peter has to have a special kind of a song to sing on a record, or and and or that really does his thing. So uh, they all are different. And uh, but the, the good thing was that when it all was said and done, there were lots of songs to choose from, and you know we could have chosen a different. Uh, cross-section of songs and had a different kind of a record but you know this is what we ended up with and and you know it's kind of a you know a consensus consensual thing really and and everybody you know and uh, uh, kind of was happy with it when it was done that's okay this is what we're going to do realizing that it could have gone different ways mm-hmm. you know we could have made an, an older sounding kind of kiss record more you know kind of when they were just getting going it was kind of not bluesy kind of thing but that stuff they did or we could have made a real slick 1999 hot you know record and or you know none of those would have worked or you know they kind of had a grunge kind of record 
you know, that was out just before this one. And, you know, that didn't work either. So we had to kind of find the right spot and uh, choose the songs accordingly. Mm -hmm. Now, ten songs ended up on the CD. How many were completely recorded? I mean, were, were there a number? Did you have like 20 songs that you chose the best 10 from? How many other songs are out there? I can't remember for sure. We finished... Now, I'm guessing here, so you can't hold me to it. I think we finished 12 that were almost completely done. And there were probably another four or five songs that we cut that we took as far as getting basic tracks cut and a rough vocal on and maybe, and you know, fixed up a few bits and pieces and, and a couple over that but not finished that at that point we realized oh gee you know we if we put this on the record it's going to be too soft or or if we put this on the record it, it, it it's going to sound you know too much like this so we just set those aside and those songs will probably get finished uh, you know maybe they'll put them in a soundtrack or you know do something else with it down the line mm -hmm. so um uh, you know, Gene's the uh, librarian, so he he's the guy that knows exactly, you know, what's there and what's not. Right. Um, did each member have a, a decent number of songs presented and rejected? Well, the, each guy in the band writes, uh, a, you know, they're, they're prolific to different degrees. Peter probably has the fewer number of ideas that, that come up. Then comes Ace. And then comes probably Gene, and Gene definitely has the most, the, the biggest body of, of songwriting material because he's collected it for years, stuff he's written, and he, he's like a squirrel. He never, you know, he's got everything and he knows where it is and he brings it up and, you know, always puts a different spin on it and out it comes. So he writes the most stuff, I think, you know, and, 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 and Peter probably the, the least. And that's no reflection on the quality of the material or anything. It's just the way some some guys are. But Gene and Paul, uh, you know, and then also to uh, uh, to another extent, Ace are, are are you know they both have different they all have different degrees of songs that they put in front of me for the record, and then you know I had to sort through them and kind of find the best stuff and, and work work at it like that. Okay, here's the million dollar question. Outside musicians on the album. Oh, Mike, I can't get into that. <laughs> okay. Because I was an outside musician on the record, and I'm, I was told not to tell anybody. Because I played trumpet on one of these songs. It was a funny story. I played trumpet on, uh, you know, I think it, 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 it was like Finally Found My Way to You. I had this fabulous trumpet part that uh, uh, one of the guys had written out. So I went in and played it, and I nailed it. It was great. And I come back into the studio to listen. Paul comes in and goes, what's that shit? What's that? What's that? You know, and I'm going, oh, jeez, the trumpet part I put on that song. And he looked at me and he went, oh, man. <laughs> he shook his head and looked at me. So it got junked out. So anyway, I, I don't really want to get into that, Mike, because there's so many rumors and stuff flying around. It just, I, all I can say is, is I had the pleasure of working with all the guys on the record and they all played and they all did good work and I can't bitch about anything anybody did. Okay. How about uh, work ethics, uh, you know, of, of the band as a whole or each individual guy? I mean, how, you yeah. know, you know, how would you judge each member and their involvement 
you know, in in wanting to be there and, and recording the album and everything else. Oh, I think everybody wanted to be there. There was no question about, you know, when guys were asked to come down, sometimes Ace would get lost on the way to the studio. So sometimes he'd be a little late. But Gene and, and Gene was all Gene's very punctual. You know, if you say, look, we're there at 12, come on, be ready to play. He's there at 10 to 12 with a cup of coffee and ready to go. Paul's always there, and, and all the guys, and, and Peter is great. Everybody was there when I needed them, and everybody put out 100% when I needed them. You know, Peter took a little a little longer to warm up his voice and get going and all that stuff, but the singing, everybody does a different kind of thing. You know, um, Gene likes to sing during the day. Paul probably starts a little later. You know, they all have different styles when they get in and get going on that. But they were all very, very, um, you know, available. And when I asked them to be there and get ready to go, it was great. You know, Ace has a ton of gear and stuff he likes to plug in and get going. So he's always sorting through stuff like that and plugging in different boxes. And, eh, you got to hear this, yeah, you know. <laughs> going. We'd be listening to things for a while. And, and uh, you know, that was great. And, and uh, Gene's very... You know, okay, let's get this. And he would go in. He said, "Listen, when I go in and I put the headphones on, I'm going to sing this song, right? If the red light's not on, we're going to be in trouble because I'm going to have this. I want to do it quick." <laughs> and he'd go in and he'd go. And if for some reason, you know, the headphone mix was not the way he liked it or something wasn't right, you know, he'd kind of roll his eyes a bit, you know. Okay, make some adjustments and try it again. But uh, other than that, he, you know, he go, "Oh, you're killing me! You're killing me!" I, you know, and then you know, and he say, "Listen, get it together, because I want to go in and sing this. I don't want to sit there and listen to the tune for an hour." <laughs> so he was great. It was very, you know, all in good humor, of course. And but it, it was really uh, kind of fun. Everybody had a bit of a different thing, but they were all really good workers. I, I was very happy with it. Now, could could you sense that? I mean. They, you know, they've been around for 25 plus years, so they've spent a lot of time in the studio. Oh, Were they just as excited to be in the studio recording now as a band who would have been in the studio for the very first time? You, you know, know, did they have that energy, that enthusiasm? I, I, you know, it's hard to say. You know, it varies for the guys. Gene, he loves the studio. You know, he loved to be in the studio every day of his life making music. You know, he couldn't have been happier. St. Paul, too. You know, uh, Peter's not as, as studio kind of a guy. You know, he's got other things that he's interested in as well. And so, you know, I didn't sing, and he really likes to sing. And and Ace loves being in there just because it's full of gear, you know, and Tech he's got stuff. most of it. So, yeah, no, they really enjoyed it. I, I, I think it's part, for a band, I think that the studio, and, and here, uh, you know, I'm talking about Kiss, but as well as other bands, I think for most bands, it's really a uh, a fun experience because, you know, it's easy to get tired of the road and that routine. But the studio, you're actually in there and you're making music and, you know, you don't have to beat yourself up, you know, every day. It, it's just, um, most bands really look forward to it, especially if a record's going well. If you, if you hit a roadblock and, you know, it starts to really, you know, Jesus, we've been working on this song for two days and I've played it 50 times and I think it sucks in the first place and I you know I don't want to be here and I don't want to play the song again blah 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 and plus this guy's an asshole and I don't you know then you have a problem but when the record's going well as did this Kiss record 
you know, you don't those you don't let those dark clouds kind of get over you and hang there. You know, there's mm-hmm. always the wind blowing and there's always new music coming through and and you're making progress all the time and and so it makes things more enjoyable for me too, as well as the guys. Mm-hmm. Um, many Kiss fans will say that "Into the Void" is the song that has the most Kiss feel to it. You know, I how, how how you describe what Kiss feel is, I don't know, but you know it as a Kiss fan. Yeah. I mean, um, any explanation why you think that might be the case? I have no idea, but I you know I knew that. When we were going to record the song, which was the reason that we grabbed that song from Ace, was that it just had that kind of, you know, vibe to it. And if you ask the guys, they they don't know either. You know, they go, "Well, I guess that's just the way the song came out." And uh, it's just one of those kind of things. There's a couple other songs that were kind of in that vein as well, but weren't as good. As good songs, you know, kind of uh, whether it's lyrically or whatever it is, but that's right. That's that's much, you know, that's that's kind of right on the nail. And and it's not easy for for a band to kind of identify those songs, even even though it's their own style. You know, if if you were to go, okay, guys, you know, go away and, and write ten, you know, classic Kiss songs, but they couldn't do it because They'd say, well, what kind of classic Kiss songs do you want? You know, they're all kind of classic for us, and there's so many different kinds of them. You know, know, what's it going to be? You know, is it Detroit Rock City, or, or, you know, is it going to be, what what, what is it? And so they don't know either, and and also not only that, but they're all changing all the time, so that, you know, the music they're excited about writing now is different than it was 15 years ago, or, or five years ago, or anything, and you know it's hard for them in some ways and when a song like Into the Void happens it's just by you know as much by accident as anything else it's just you know you'd have to ask Ace about it right is it is it true that Ace remixed Into the Void no no we we mixed it or I did you know actually uh, Mick Gazowski Mick mixed it okay but uh, yeah no we all mixed them all you know we all did them all in the same batch and everything was was there another one of the the tunes that really stands out as a great song is we are one yeah but that is so you know hated by kiss fans well no i wouldn't say that it's just so against the quote stereotype of the demon oh yeah i mean it was was there when that song came in by gene was there some thought of gee you know how can the you know this this blood spitting demon sing this beautiful song we are one that's right no, we had that discussion many times, and the funny thing is that that's a side of Gene's writing that nobody really hears. He's got songs like that and better in that style that you know just sings great, and the arrangements are really melodic and the you know all that stuff. But then they're really creative, but they never see the light of day on a Kiss record, and. I asked him, I said, well, look, what's the story here? I mean, these are really good songs, great piece of music. I mean, songs that radio, you know, could jump all over, you know, even, you know, pop radio even. And and so I said, you know, I'd like to see a different side of the demon. You know, for you're always kind of doing this 
stuff. Mm-hmm. What if you took a chance and, and you know kind of turned the other cheek, or you know those like you know, those heads that flip around the other way, just for a minute, and give Kiss fans a little bit of a glimpse of what you write as well. And so we decided that that we would do that, just for the, for that one song, just to show people that you know the other side of him. I and you know I I personally thought it was great because. It showed that he wasn't restraining himself to the stereotype of what Gene Simmons should write. You know, yeah. that that he can only write a God of Thunder type of of song or you yeah. know, burn bitch burn. It's like no, yeah. I mean, you know, he he should have the freedom to step out and write whatever he feels is is great songs. Yeah, within reason. What? If we if we'd put two or three of those kind of songs on the record, and and there were two or three that, and maybe more that came across, you know my desk then we would have really fucked up because then it becomes you know like a pop record well not like a not only a pop record but a real different flavored pop record and that's a mistake so you know and i was saying earlier about talking about what songs you pick for a record and which ones you you know you put aside for another day there's you know those there's other those kind of songs that you know we decided look they're great tunes but but you know there'll be another place another time but we you know i really felt strongly about you know getting we are one there and you know it's a different kind of a message for people and and uh, you know it's very much a part of gene simmons and and you know his character although you would think doesn't embrace that kind of a thing you know that okay we're together we're here it's very much a song to the fans exactly and a song about all of them all together and he really feels it from the heart. And our hope was that, you know, KISS fans would hear that message in there and, you know, kind of get beyond the, you know, the, the the melodic nature of the song and say, hey, you know, this is a legitimate kind of thing for him mm-hmm. to talk about. Do you have a favorite song on the album? Hmm. You just said it. I think, well, I have several favorites. I think my, my most favorite is Within. For some reason, I, I, I don't know why, it just always kind of grabbed me. It's a great lyric um, that, that you know, Gene had. It's a very thought-provoking lyric, and, and I, I liked the groove in it. It was kind of, you know, really kind of heavy, and the guitar part in the middle was great. And so I liked that a lot. I liked Into the Void a lot just because, you know, it was one of those really neat Kiss songs that all of a sudden came, and there it was, and... Uh, it was perfect thing for phrase, so that was a favorite of mine as well. And we are one, of course, was something I really liked a lot. Mm-hmm. And those are my favorites, I think. You you had mentioned earlier on that you know your vision of what you saw Kiss was more of a stage band, a live band. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that Psycho Circus is kind of a very faint live concert concept album. Uh, you know, the Psycho Circus as the opening tune, you know, a yeah. great show opener. Yeah. Journey of a Thousand Years is a great song that you could just see at the end of a concert. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's there's the, uh, you know, uh, Raise Your Glasses, and You Wanted the Best in the middle there where, yeah. you know, that, that audience participation, the, the anthem-type material. Yeah. I mean, it, it was... Was that something that just happened, or or was there kind of an effort to try and make Psycho Circus have a yeah. something that would fit very much to a live concert? Yeah, there, there definitely was that effort, and 
you know, we didn't want to make a concept album where, where, you know, everything had to relate to the concept and everything had to fit together. And, you know, it, it was like a, you know, one of those kind of minutely detailed presentations. It wasn't like that, but we did consciously look at this and go, look, you know, welcome to the show. Come on in. Here you go. And then the first song is within, you know. We're going to take you on this. Once you're here, you know, and you've come through the, that mouth or whatever the door is, okay, we're going to take you on this trip. And then then it becomes a little bit, once you get past within, it becomes a little looser. Right. In terms of the presentation of the songs, they're just, then they become just songs and they're just stories or they're, you know, they're, they're kind of grooves. But at the end, we consciously, lyrically asked, okay, you've been on this journey, you know, and ask a few questions, you know. Did you did you fly without wings? Did you, you know, hear? Did you see? You know, like we kind of presented at the beginning of the, of the show, you know, look back and see what happened there. And so there was this kind of a uh, a bit of a closure to the record, more lyrically than anything, and although musically, too, it's a very kind of spacious, kind of big tune. Um, but yeah, we did do that, and and you know, uh, you know, thank you for recognizing that because <laughs> a lot of people don't see that or they don't get far enough into it to, to recognize that or they don't just give a shit, and that's all. That's all good too. But you know, occasionally somebody will will see that there's been a little bit extra care and thought here, and then yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Now, if 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 I just give you a song title here, can you give me a quick thought? Uh, memory, something that pops into your mind here. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Psycho Circus. Psycho Circus was getting in Paul's car and listening to the demo of that when we we, we didn't have an opener for the record. We didn't have anything that, that was going to start things off. And he just looked at me and said, check this, this is it. Boom, put it up on 10. And we both sat there and looked at each other and just started to laugh because that was it. So that's Psycho Circus for me. Within. Within, I think, was, you know, that weird heavy guitar sound that comes in. It it was realizing what that guitar sound was. That it it appeared in one of Gene's demos, and it was so exciting when we brought it in the studio and made that happen. Just that sound and and the the evilness, not evilness, but that kind of you know thing that that thing has. That was a highlight for me and within was that kind of sound when that happened. And, and the and the lyric for me when Gene was working that lyric and brought it in, you know, I thought, man, that's that's not like anything I've really heard from Kiss before and, and this is pretty interesting. So I like that more about those songs. Um, I pledge allegiance to the state of rock and roll. For that one I, I just you know, I don't have anything that special as as a memory for that song, other than the fact that Paul saying to me, we said, you know, that's a pretty kind of gutsy, like almost cliche kind of thing to, to title a song, and not only a title song, but to sing. And he says, you know, if Kiss can't stand up there and 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 sell and perform a lyric like that, then nobody else can. And we all said, yeah, this that's is true. something Kiss can do. <laughs> So we all went, okay, let's go with it. Into the Void. Into the Void was, 
Oh, I just had a great time singing that uh, with Ace. Well, he cut that, you know, because he was just the, the way he sings and the way the way he does his vocals in the studio are just great. And uh, so for me, that that was the the moment on that song was was doing the vocal. We are one. We are one was watching Gene show me how all the background parts were supposed to fit. You know, and and when it goes down to the vocal breakdown, and there's three or four. It's almost like a cannon in its construction, and there's it's across about eight faders of vocals. And watching him sit, and and his fingers are like uh, they're like kind of tentacles or something, you know. And they're all moving up and down, and he's hearing the the blending of all these vocal parts. And he gets it, and he does, and he says, "See how that works? That's how that's supposed to work." And I went. Okay, good. I'm glad we just put it on tape here over in two tracks because it was a performance for him, and, and he just gets so into that, and that was good. You wanted the best. Oh, that was recording the uh, there again, recording the vocals because the guys all had to come in and do these lines, and like they were pissed off at each other, you know. You said right, you know, and you, you know, getting them right. back and, and and going to Peter, Peter. You know, listen. You gotta be pissed off at that. You know, and he goes, "Oh, I can do that. No problem. You know, check this out." <laughs> so it, we had a lot of fun doing that lyric because it was, you know, just fun and getting into the spirit of that whole thing. It was good. Raise your glasses. Raise your glasses was, uh, you know, I'm trying to think about raise your glasses. There again, it was it, it was about getting that song, you know, dealing with it. Lyrically, to try and get something. We first of all thought "Raise Your Glasses" is too, you know, too cliché a title, and we went through all kinds of different possibilities. What what could it be? You know, that would be real hip and cool and everything. And we always came back to "Raise Your Glasses" because it's it's one of those sentiments that hey, you know, it could be a bar, it could be anything that you know, it's just a hey, here's to you. It's a toast and a celebration and. and so I, I just like that discussion of, of where the song was going and why it was going going there and how that happened. I finally found my way. Oh, well, two moments there. One was we cut that song as it, when Paul did the demo. And we were up at the small little studio and Bob Ezrin was, was in playing this Fender Rhodes and and uh, you know, it's Paul playing. It was just a kind of a very pared down kind of thing, just to get a feel of the song. And Bob played this part on this Rhodes, and it was noisy, um, you know, and it had some clunks and stuff in it. And, and but it had a beautiful tone. Well, when we did the track, we we had Bob come over and replay the part, but we could never capture that feel that he had when he played it and you know Paul was over in the corner kind of singing away in his ear and they were just doing it like that so we went to a lot of trouble to, tr to take that original performance it was a really special thing and, and the other th thing was my time spent with Peter singing this vocal and finding out about Peter the artist Peter the singer and uh, the way he took that lyric and, and you know 
made it so personal and and the way he sang it and uh, you know I was you know I'm almost in tears sometimes um, just listening to him sing and, and listening to him come to grips with with that song and and it was a very uh, special moment for me dreaming dreaming I just like the uh, the 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 moment that that song was there we were sitting around in the lounge at the studio and it Paul played it, and you know nobody kind of got that excited about it. And then Gene said, "You know, really that I forget exactly what part was part what part, but you know that part you've got there really sounds like the chorus." And we looked at him. And, what do you mean that part there? He said, "Yeah, yeah. Look, you know if you took this part, it's kind of like you know a piece of a puzzle. Here, look, if you took this, put that there, and it took that there, and put that there." We said, no kidding. He said, yeah, listen, I'll bring it back tomorrow. Give me this tape. So he took it home and, you know, bounced it back and forth between a couple of tape machines, brought it back. And then that song, oh, man, it, it became something special. And it was still all, you know, Paul's parts and everything like that, but they'd just been, you know, he was able to picture it in a different way. And it became that what that arrangement is. So that was really exciting because... You know, up until then, my opinion was that the song was good, but it wasn't, you know, special. And, and he was able to go, oh, listen, hey, here's a different look at this. Try it on. And so it was very exciting. And Journey of a Thousand Years. I think was recording the, you know, the strings and, and um, you know, doing that whole thing. And then, and then having the idea to bring back the uh, the guitar theme from Psycho Circus. Uh, having the strings played out on the way out mm-hmm. and the big piano thing and just, you know, realizing that, you know, let's take a bit of a chance here. You know, if anybody could pull it off, it could be Kiss. A lot of other bands trying that kind of a, you know, a, a reprise of, of some of the ideas of beginning the album. People wouldn't accept it because it's too, you know, too corny or something like that. But we realized that if we did it right, that it it, it it, it was very believable. Not only that, it was a good piece of music. Mm-hmm. So that was quite exciting to see, you know, all the string players in there playing, you know, doing that theme and realizing, hey, you know, here's a, a piece of melody. I think it was Paul's melody from Psycho Circus that we're bringing back in, in the context of, of one of Gene's songs. And, you know, it, it was a great thing. And uh, I'll wrap this up with one question. Just what's your general thoughts or comments you know on on each individual member oh well i mean just real a real quick real know. quick i mean it's it's so hard i mean gene you know and it was a real revelation to me about all the guys in the band but gene is such a very sweet caring and very personable guy and just you know, a guy you would, although he doesn't drink, a guy you'd phone up and say, hey, you know, come on down, let's, let's go have a beer, you know, and or let's go out and see this concert. You know, he's just really so, he's such a nice guy and, and very, so enthusiastic and positive about what he does. And, and Paul, I like Paul for many reasons, but one is he's very, uh, I, I don't know whether, uh, he, he's very sophisticated in, in you know, in in how he is as a person, he's just a, you know, he's a great guy to to spend time with outside the studio. You know, we went up to dinner a number of times, and 
you know, he's a very uh, broad kind of guy in terms of, you know, what, what he knows and what he, he likes. and You know, that there's that about him. Ace I like just because he was so uh, crazy and, and sometimes kind of focused on what he was doing to the point where he was, you know, absent-minded. And, um, you know, he just, uh, you know, he's, he's such a character. You know, like I was saying earlier, you know, sometimes you get lost getting down to the studio. You get a phone call. Where are you, Ace? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I'm coming up. Uh, you know, hang on. You know, and you look out the window. And, okay, here I know where you are. You know, <laughs> so Ace is, and, and Ace is just a really uh, you know fun guy to to, to work with, and 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 a, and a really very good guitarist. So uh, you know that was good. And, and Peter. I found to be just the most charming of individuals, you know, and a real honest guy. You know, he's somebody, when you had a conversation with Peter, there was no bullshit. It was just, you know, you sat down man to man and, and talked about what was on his mind or what was on your mind or what was going on in his his life or whatever. And it was just, you know, straight ahead stuff. Bang, right away. From the first moment you met him, your first moment I met him, I felt... You know, I could tell him the worst thing that was going to happen, or something terrible, or or the best thing, and it was just you know I didn't have to run around the block a couple times to get there, and so he was very open and just you know really honest kind of guy, and and, and uh, it was great. Excellent, yeah. excellent. And I could say all of these guys, <laughs> and, I, I, and I'd say that in all honesty, you know, as a bunch of guys to work with as a band or. You know, as individuals, they're all so different people in their personalities and characters. You wonder how they could ever get together and form a band in the first place, not to mention have a band that spans so many years and such a uh, fabulously successful career. It, it's really one of the mysteries of rock and roll and, and one of the beautiful uh, mysteries mm-hmm. that that can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just take my hat off to them. You raise your glasses. I raise my and as we speak, I'm raising my glass. <laughs> All of them collectively and individually. <laughs> well, you Bruce, have I something want... to say? Leave a voicemail or send us a text message. Call three two zero five one five. Voices for three sides of the coin. Provided by LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with a Z.